Turkey hunting is one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt. When I'm hunting turkeys, it is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Hey, I'm excited to share our newest sponsor here on the Meat Eater Podcast, which is Poncho Outdoors. The reason I'm excited is I buy their shirts anyways. Dude, they make some good shirts. And they even have an option where if you're like a skinny dude, you can click like the skinny dude thing. It's great. Based in Austin, Texas, Poncho is committed to crafting the world's best outdoor shirts for men. Poncho is only sold on their own website. So head over to ponchooutdoors.com, use code MEATEATER for a free hat or t-shirt with any purchase of a shirt. Poncho offers free shipping and returns, so you can try them out risk-free. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. All right, our guest is Frank. Tell, tell us your last name. Van Manen. Van Manen. Or Von Manen. Von Manen. Whatever you prefer. So no, but you're not. I was surprised when you walked in. You're not. You're not. You weren't born in the U.S. I wasn't born in the U.S. No, I, became, I am a U.S. citizen. Became a bear biologist, a grizzly bear biologist, or a bear biologist. Yeah, bear, initially. Bears in general. Um, I came to the U.S. in uh, 1988. Do you remember how old you were when you saw your first bear? When I saw my first bear, uh, I was about uh, 25, probably. Yeah. So, you at what age did you get into wildlife biology? Like, did you get that back home? Yeah, so I did a, a master's uh, in biology at, at, at the university in, in the Netherlands, at the agriculture university. And Studying what? Like, what were you looking at there? Um, well, in the beginning, it was actually a combined bachelor's, master's, so it, it, in the beginning it was kind of undetermined, and, and towards the end... Um, I, I got really interested in, in doing an internship on a large carnivore because there weren't any in, in the Netherlands. You know, there's no wolves. There's, there were no bears or anything like it. The, the largest carnivore we had there was a, was a red, fo- a red so fox. So not that they'd been extirpated, but they weren't there in the first place. Uh, no, they, they were extirpated. Yeah. Okay. So brown bears were extirpated there probably more than a thousand years ago. I see. Um, and wolves, I don't know exactly, but that, that, that had been quite a while as well. Uh, and interestingly, wolves are now gradually returning to Western Europe. There's, there have been a few sightings of wolves now in the Netherlands. 
Um, How are they received there? Open arms? Uh, not, is it controversial there as well? Not, not yet, but I think it's because it's, it's just been a siding or two, you know. They haven't dusted off someone's land right, yet. Exactly. Uh, and uh, once that, that starts happening, it might change. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but so far, it's mostly excitement, actually. That's, uh, so, yeah. It's amazing that in a place like the Netherlands, you know, it's uh, 16 million people in in, the, in a country the size that's one ninth of the state of Montana. You know, <laughs> so you really? do the do the math. It's a pretty amazing that you yeah, can yeah. still wow. find wolves there. So you started looking at large carnivores in what, but not in the Netherlands. Just not a, yeah. So there, there were uh, people were working on on uh, brown bears and what at the time was still Yugoslavia and then in Spain. And so I was trying to get in on some of those projects. And gotcha. The timing just didn't work out. But I did through through those contacts that I made with those projects. Uh, I was able to get an internship at the University of Tennessee with uh, Dr. Mike Pelton, who was a well-known uh, black bear biologist um, in, in the eastern U.S. And so that's that's really where I got started with my... And what were you guys bear. looking at with black bears? Well, a lot of different things, um, primarily population dynamics, so uh, population changes and trend over time, um, looking at denning behavior, uh, which was really interesting over there because most of the, the black bears there then in, in high up in hollow trees. Mm-hmm. And so that's, uh, I did a lot of tree climbing in, in those days. And that was, yeah, what's that was high ex- up in a, in a tree? Well, um, the highest one that we ever measured was about 110 feet up in a tree. So, oh, so not in hollow trees. Yeah. Most, in the canopy. No, in hollow trees. So, How the hell has he got a, a hollow big enough to hold a black bear 110 feet in the air? Well, you, you, there's in the Smokies, you know, you still have some areas with, with uh, old growth. And uh, What kind of tree was he in? Well, uh, I think that was actually a... Um, trying to remember. That might have been a tulip poplar. Um, and there so was a hollow big enough uh, for that thing to climb into. Oaks, tulip poplars, uh, some white oaks, um, chestnut oaks. Those were the most common trees. No, so, are they up there because it's, are they up there to avoid predation, or are they up there for some other reason? Um, to not so, not so much to avoid predation, I think, but certainly to avoid disturbance. Yeah. And you know, no better place to be than high up in a tree to avoid disturbance. Yeah, no one's going to stumble across. Oh, heck no! And so you know, we we would climb up. We would we'd set up a climbing rope, and uh, which was pretty tricky most of the time. And then we'd get up to the to the entrance of the den, and then most of the time it was just a hollow. So it's a cavity into a hollow part of the tree that. Uh, that was established, you know, years ago from a, a, a big branch breaking off, so a windbreak or a lightning strike, something like that, would over time, you know, over fifty to a hundred years, could create this this big hollow compartment where bears would just uh, basically hibernate for. for you the could wind. reach in there and touch them, right? I mean, yes, that's yeah. in some cases they were that close. In other cases, we, you know, especially with chestnut oaks, you would go up you know, 45, 50 feet up in the tree and you look down 45 feet and bear was all the way down at the bottom. It was hollowed out all the way uh, to the bottom and the bear would actually be resting basically at, at the bottom of the tree. Um, but the only way to get there is to, to climb up in the tree first. You know? So uh, some to- really amazing experiences oh, to, yeah. to see where those bears end up. Now, how is it that you grew up using the metric system and you still use it in your discipline? But you don't mind conversing to Americans in standard? I, yeah. You had I to mean, learn that? That's like a professional skill? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's right. Uh, it took a while. Because when you publish to, work, you publish. Yeah, you, you it's don't all use, metric. Yeah, yeah. So, so you but, just do standard just to talk to people so they know what you're talking about. 
Try to, yeah. yeah I mean, that's uh, appreciate that's, it. That's, appreciate that's, the that's important. I, you know, I don't have all the the, the stats from uh, necessarily in in uh, in, in the, the English system, but uh, but yeah, I, you know, that's something you pick up on. It. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, what someone told me once, and then someone told me it's not true. Would you find that those cavities that they would take a year off between using those cavities that the cavities would sit empty a year? And then the bear would come back, or is that not true? Um, they wouldn't necessarily come back to the same cavity. That was actually pretty rare. We only saw about five to fifteen percent reuse of, of the, the same cavities. Well, how the hell they find in the cavities? Well, you know, they spend a lot of time in trees. You know, so uh, they're they're up in trees eating grapes or or uh, acorns even before they drop on the ground. Um, so they're up and, and eating other fruits. So they're up in the trees a lot. And, and my guess is that as they they spend a lot of time in trees, they will they will remember places where there's a cavity. They saw one. They they know their, their habitat like uh, like we know our house. You know, it's it's something that I think that that we underestimate the capability of these animals. Their to, spatial awareness. Yes. Yeah. Total. They they know every every square inch of their home range, you know? and then the females they would they would drop their litters up in the cavities. Exactly, yeah. So for for those cubs, it's an incredibly safe place to be born. Yeah. Do they lose? Uh, that cub could probably withstand a little bit of a fall, but it's got to be dangerous getting them back down out of there. Well, yeah, and then so I, I, we've seen them come out, and uh, and it's it's pretty amazing. I mean, you know, sometimes um, you know in April or so when they came out. You would see them climb down this huge tree, and then, you know these tiny little cubs. But their their claws are amazing. You know, when, so when we would do these den visits, we if if we had an opportunity to do it safely, we would immobilize the female and examine that, that give us would give us a chance to examine the cubs and all that. And uh, and when you take those cubs out, I mean, it's their their claws are like Velcro. They just stick to you. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah like a little kitten or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You can't get so them so it, it it gave them enough. Uh, traction on, on the bark of the tree to, to to get down the tree, and it's it's pretty amazing to see that how how well equipped they are right from from that age, you know, when they when they first come out of the den to uh, to spend a lot of time in trees. That's that's their their safety place. Yeah. So is there a for a bear guy like you're a bear guy, right? Like you you focus on bears. Yeah, totally. Is there a journal you guys use? Like, is there like a journal called like Ursus or something? There is about yeah. the world's bears. That's what I thought. Yeah. I thought yeah. I remember seeing something like that. So, yeah. what other what other species of bears around the world did you look at before you got focused in on grizzlies? Um, so, between my you know, so when I first started on, on black bears, I, I spent quite a bit of number of years on, on working on black bears, and eventually got involved with some international work. Um, uh, with researchers in in other countries, so uh, in Sri Lanka, for example, I worked with with a researcher there who was working on uh, sloth bears. Uh, that was a really interesting project. Uh, I've worked with. Uh, and then you were doing population work on those as well. Population work, uh, also a lot of habitat work, uh, habitat analyses, you know, home range sizes and, and things like that. Because there was so little known about. There's nothing known really about sloth bears in Sri Lanka. And, and are they stable or are they in decline? Or? Well, they, they're still holding on pretty well right now. Um, interestingly enough, you know, there used to be a civil war there. And um, in a way, that was good for, for sloth bears because the, the, the rebel, um, uh, the, the Tamil tigers is, is the group yeah. that, uh, that, that basically had a conflict with, uh, with the national government. And so um, 
the, the Tamil tigers controlled a lot of the area where sloth bears still existed. And, and they would not allow people to go into those areas with, with guns and such. So it actually, uh, sadly enough, that the war actually created, in, in some ways, a protection for, for those populations. So is there a bushmeat market there? Or are no. people hunting for parts for the it's, Asiatic like trade and aphrodisiacs or what? It's um, most of, of what, like what happens a lot is there's people um, going out sometimes illegally into national parks, uh, going out for for honey, but they in the in the process sometimes they are attacked by by sloth bears because they sloth bears tend to be relatively aggressive. Okay, and so when that happens, you know a lot of times those bears end up getting killed. So it's not necessarily for for meat or anything. There's there's really no poaching problem per se yeah, it is conflict. it's just conflict that uh, that leads to mortalities of those bears and and, and now probably illegal logging does that tie into the habitat loss and stuff or is that not an issue for them um not so much the bigger issue right now is now that there is a peace agreement um, people are moving back into those areas uh, you know because they avoided the areas of conflict yep. of course now they're moving back and moving into sloth bear habitat so that is um that is is probably going to have a, a potentially lasting effect on, on populations there. So we'll, we'll have to see how that uh, how that pans out in the future. And then, have you done work with the bears in South America? Yes. So I've, I've uh, called sun bears, right? Uh, those are Andean bears. Andean yeah. bears. Or, or in, in what's this? Where's the sun bear from? Uh, sun bears mostly in uh, Southeast Asia, oh, okay. so Malaysia, Indonesia. So the Andean bear, yes, is the South American bear. That's the only South American bear, and kind of a relatively primitive bear species if you look at it evolutionarily. Um, they're they're quite old. Uh, same with with giant pandas, also an, an old. Bear species of the current, uh, the, you know, the, the, the currently the, the eight species that that we have in the world, um, and it's um, when you say old, <clears throat> meaning that like the animal hasn't changed much in a over a long period of time. Well, um, old in the sense that that it stems from an uh, yeah a, a, an older evolutionary lineage. So you know, brown bears and polar bears are the most new. modern bears, yeah. so to speak, in, in that sense. So the, these are the, the polar the giant, bear being the newest, right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and so the giant panda and, and uh, Andean bear are the, the older bear lineages, so to speak. And so, yeah, Andean bears was a really interesting uh, species to, to work on. Um, they they occur in some of the you know, really high elevation areas in the Andean mountains. Um, like they're like an alpine species. Yeah, not? they they have they cover quite an elevational range actually. So some of the work is in uh, in, in these areas called Paramo, which which basically means no no trees. Um, so these open areas and in, in elevations, um, you know, over fourteen thousand feet or so, and uh, and they feed primarily on, on bromeliads. So they they uh, they consume the, the the tissue that's at the bottom of the leaves. That is uh, uh, that tissue that has a lot of sugars in it, and then so they will rip open these these big bromeliads and, and eat the, the base of those leaves. It's really really neat how uh, how they've adapted to that. And do they mix it up with people, or is they are they pretty docile? Um, they they they're fairly you know for for in, in terms of calling any bear species docile. You know it's yeah they're they're pretty uh, they're they're pretty easygoing. They're they're not very aggressive uh, species. Um, they 
they occasionally kill cattle, uh, but there's really not a not a large number of of conflicts uh, between people and and Indian bears necessarily. But now, do panda bears ever kill people? Is that is that known to happen? Uh, to my knowledge, I, I I'm not sure. That they have no reason to kill livestock or anything. Right? No, no, no. Um, you know, panda bears are are you know Just herbivorous, right? Yeah, I mean they they. Almost all of their diet is is bamboo. Yeah. So um, yeah, of course, very unique. But they can still can they move fast or not move fast? Uh, they can, um, but but their home ranges tend to be relatively small. Their movements right. still tend to be uh, relatively small too. They they kind of you know basically set up shop in a, in a in a good bamboo patch and basically wear it out and move on to, to okay, the next yeah. patch so that's that's their their typical mode of operation so they almost like a like porcupine. the way a porcupine uses his landscape you know yeah yeah move on when when the resources are you know getting to the point where you're just not efficient anymore um so then did all that now how did it come to be that you were okay I guess now at this point, explain your job now, your title now. Um, so I'm, I'm currently, um, my official title is uh, with the USGS is uh, I'm a, a supervisory wildlife, uh, no, what is it? <laughs> Research wildlife biologist. Um, with the interagency. Yeah, so, and that's, so I'm the team leader of the interagency grizzly bear study team. And by interagency, that means... Eight. U.S. Geological Survey. Yeah. So who, who you work for? USGS. USGS. Um, so eight different entities altogether. So the USGS, uh, Fish and Wildlife Service, um, National Park Service, uh, Forest Service, and then the three state agencies for uh, Montana, Wyoming, and Idaho. And then we also work with uh, the tribal agencies of the Northern Arapaho and the Eastern Shoshone, Shoshone uh, tribes. And the only thing under your purview then is the is the grizzly bears in the greater Yellowstone area. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. So we this team was established uh, back in 1973. So it's it's we've got a long history, more than four decades. So. What year did they get listed? Uh, two years. Right? Uh, it was 75. 75. Okay. Yeah. And uh, and so we were actually in existence before the the official listing of of. Uh, Grizzly bears in the lower 48s under the Endangered Species Act. I read the the the, 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 the interagency group. No, I guess we should explain too. So you're not involved in policy. No, that's right. You're involved in pure research. Correct. Giving information, providing accurate, non presumably non biased information to policymakers to inform their decision making. And you guys got started though, right? I I think I feel like I read this. You guys got started with involved just like closing dumps. That's right. Bears like that was sort of a a strange, somewhat. uh, you know, like a, a not very uh, hot button topic, I'm imagining at the time. It was like the closing of dumps for attracting bears in the park or something, right? Yeah. So, the, you know, uh, the, there were open pit garbage dumps in, in, in throughout the Yellowstone ecosystems, and, and, and including Yellowstone National Park. Which is where people used to do their bear viewing. That's right. Yeah. I mean, they literally had um, what they call bear counters, you know, where, where bears were just be fed uh, the garbage from the hotels and then people would they, they would have basically a gallery for people to sit and, and watch these bears feed uh, on their lunch counter and um and so after you know the, the the national park service had done some had asked to for some reports uh, and there's this famous uh, uh, leopold report that that determined that that 
you know, they they made a recommendation that the Park Service move to a more natural management of, of wildlife in general. Leopold before, not Aldo. No, Starker. Star, okay. Yeah. And I said that was after his time, well after his time. Right, But yeah. made a report that, that – that that changed policies in in the national parks in terms of of um, their their management and and taking a more um, natural management approach to to all all wildlife management including bears and and so I think Yellowstone has been on the forefront of that uh, right from the beginning and uh, and so yeah I don't think enough people realize some of the things about Yellowstone like people like like people who don't have a who don't have a, a, a deep background in wildlife and wildlife management, and wildlife politics. I always like to th- they kind of like to think of Yellowstone as this sort of thing that's always existed in this static form. Right, yeah. When they don't realize that like all the buffalo or all the bison that are in Yellowstone used to be in a fence and were fed hay and straw. Exactly. You know, that the bear viewing was, like you said, fed bears. Basically, you watch, you would observe bait stations. Yeah. You know, but people have this image of it as like, this is like pres- the, the, the pristine area where we all we get to watch everything play out in its natural form, you know, without realizing what a sort of conscious, like that there that there was a conscious act to create this. Exactly. You know what I mean? It doesn't exist because it doesn't exist just because it's been hands off. It exists because people have pursued a sort of vision there. Right. You know? Yeah, and and you know, management in in the parks has always um, been pretty heavy and and in some cases there, there's really no way around that you know i, I think um managers will have to be pretty heavy-handed in, in some instances in, in some small parks for example and yeah um, and in this way management has kind of come down to almost non-management but like making decisions to do these things yeah exactly yeah because yeah. Yeah, yeah there's still even if if you decide not to do something that's that's you could still call that a, a, a management decision yeah um, so, so they got rid of the bait stations, or what are the uh, counters, uh, the lunch the, counters, the, the open pit garbage dumps? Yeah, so they they got was rid there of, resistance to that from from park visitors who wanted to see bears right now. Yeah, though, so there was resistance from from visitors that uh, that that were worried that they wouldn't be able to see bears anymore, and there was resistance at that time from the the two prominent researchers on, on grizzly bears in Yellowstone. And uh, why did they have a problem? John and Frank Craighead, of course. Oh, the, the, the pioneers of. Uh, well, what was their bear They wouldn't be able to find their bears very easily anymore. No, they their concern was that uh, that so the park service proposed to to close the dumps basically all you know at, at once, not not phase it out. Oh, and so that was a, the, the major disagreement. Did it would lead to displacement? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Did they like strike off across the country and have no idea what they were? And and that did happen. Is that right? Um, but the park service argument at the time was that um, if we phase it out, there's going to be generations and generations of bears that still know how to use that resource and it's better to just wean them off right off, you know right away and and deal with with the consequences and i think you know you, cold you, turkey basically yeah yeah we got a friend uh he might, i don't think he's downstairs right now but he's trying to quit chew <laughs> <laughs> and he needs to do like they did with the park bears <laughs> just shut it cold down turkey yeah they sh- he needs to shut it down yeah so the you know the there was a major disagreement, um, and and the consequence of it was that that there was high mortality of grizzly bears after that. Indeed, really? just like just like you said, that's that's exactly what happened. Bears started moving all over the place looking for foods that you know previously they gotten all these easy handouts, and now yeah, yeah. they had to kind of fetch for themselves and turn so, up in people's yards and yeah, livestock uh, roadways, campgrounds. So a, a large number uh, had to be removed. Uh, 
because of, of problem issues and conflicts. And so that probably put a dent in the population at the time. And, that, and the closing those open dumps happened in the park and out of the park. Yeah, so the, the ones out of the park were a little bit later, but, uh, but by the early 70s, the ones in the park had been closed. Now, how many grizzlies were there in the... You know, I, like this, I know this isn't something you you can you you can't you could probably have no comment to this, but I think it was like a strategic. This is just me talking. I think it was a strategic miscalculation to call the 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 Greater Yellowstone ecosystem the Greater Yellowstone ecosystem because it because the name is built around the park. And sure. So people have a heart. It, it like messes. They with can't people. separate. They think of it as the park. Yeah, I would call it something totally different. Like I don't know, name your I don't know the upper, Rocky, Rocky Mountain Tri State area. Just the out of the, like the the something I don't know the area the the area with a lot of animals <laughs> because the greater area yeah, yeah the greater yeah, area because you do there, there's like we have I think that you know again this is just me talking personally but I think we uh, collectively in the West there's like a thing that, that we we suffer from Yellowstone syndrome and it's really hard for people to like sort out the differences of the park and the not park. You know, and, and what the challenges are within the park, how those how challenges within the park affect people surrounding the park, and it just becomes. And so, when they call it the Greater Yellowstone Ecosystem, I think people, you know, have a hard time realizing that that's like a little piece of something. Yeah, that's it's, the size of Indiana. Yeah, but people here yell, they're, "Oh, they're going to the Yellowstone Bears." They like, associate oh, the it with the park when we're talking about it, but about a fairly large region. But at that time, like, so go back to the inception of your interagency group. How many how many uh, grizzlies were there? Well, in, in so the, in the GYE or in the actual Yellowstone or whatever. Yeah, so the, the area of occupancy at the time was was much smaller than it is now. Probably so it was like Yellowstone, basically Yellowstone yeah, National yeah. Park and a little bit of, of area uh, around it. Um, but but like, would it be fair to say back then most bears were probably coming in and out of the park? Yes. Oh, absolutely. At some point yeah. in their life. Yeah. yeah. And so after uh, all those bears had been removed from the, from the system in the early 70s because of conflicts, um, you know, there, there's really no good estimates. And, and there's some numbers out there that, that people, you know, have a number of like 136. Well, I don't think we can get it that exact. And your, your specialty and, is dynamics. Right. Yeah. Dynamics. Looking at population dynamics. So you're probably extra cautious. I am extra cautious. So, so when you it's, hear 136. It's possible, <laughs> it's possible that there, that there might have been, you know, around 200, maybe a, 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 few, a little fewer than that. And but how that's, many, that's how probably many in the lower we 48? Um, at that time. So let, let's go back. You know, let's, let's do this. Let's go to, the year of the year of listing. Now, when, when people say listing, just for listeners, when people say listing, what we're talking about is that the, the that they got protection as a threatened species, not as an endangered species. But the grizzly bears in the lower forty-eight were afforded protection under the Endangered Species Act, listed as threatened, so not listed as endangered, but listing as threatened, like possible for them to become endangered exactly way to think about it. and that happened in 1975 so at that point how many were in what's now the the greater yellowstone ecosystem and how many in the lower 48 in total so in in the greater yellowstone ecosystem there, there probably would have been around 200 is is our best estimate our best and it's it's pretty much a guess but even uh, you know based on some of the earlier work um there, there were just no Really, really solid numbers, but yeah. that, that's that's a that's a pretty reasonable assumption. Um, you know, estimates for any of the other ecosystems were were 
pretty poor too at the time. So it's it's basically you know some big guesswork here. I'm I'm just throwing out a number. It's pro- it was probably fewer than a thousand at the time. So how were they counting them then? Like one, two, three, four, five, six. Well, or using models. No, that a lot of it was just based on um, observational work, uh, identif- you know. So the the, the Craigheads had had done some work, you know, starting in the in the you know through the fifties and sixties, and and so based on the animals that they had marked and, and observations from from those studies, you know, there were there were some indications of of what population size might be, but but they didn't study all bears, you know, they studied primarily around the dump sites. So there were probably a lot of other bears that were never observed. So that's why you know, some of the low numbers that that I've heard, I, I, you know, I, we we kind of wonder whether that's really whether the population really was that low, or whether a lot of bears were actually missed in those um, kind of assessments, and, yeah. and and that's those were I would call them you know kind of qualitative uh, population assessments at the time. Let's say we just knew for whatever reason we knew that two hundred was accurate. There was two. Let's just say there was two hundred. Yeah. Can there be two hundred? For a long time, or is that like a number that just doesn't work? Oh, that that can be two hundred for a long time, yeah. you know. And, you don't run into and I, I don't think it was actually necessarily that long anyway, uh, because and we'll probably talk about you, this. You know, but, I'm getting at like they say, like with passenger pigeons, right? Right. There had to be millions. If you didn't have millions, you wouldn't have any. Do you know what I mean they rely like just their whole system? Relied yeah. on there being many. Yeah, and that's that's not really the case with uh, with bear populations. You know, I'm, I, there's some bear populations in Europe, for example, that that for decades have now existed in the, in the range of a dozen or so in the Pyrenees, for example. God, you know, really, it just yeah. seems like how it's just like and they, so I mean, they're like amazing animals. You know, they they can just hang on for for a long time, and as long as you have. A, a couple of females that still reproduce every now and then, it can actually, you know, stay at that level unless there's additional threats. But it can stay at that level for a long time. It's, it's of course not those. Those are not by any means sustainable, viable population levels in the long run. Of course, yeah. um, but there's there's populations in, in northern Italy, in central Italy, um, in in western Spain, and in the Pyrenees that are all around that that size of somewhere between a dozen uh, for some populations to 40 for others to up to maybe 80 or so for other populations and and they have been like that for for probably decades and and with no foreseeable change in the future that that those populations would get a whole lot bigger yeah so, so weird now, genetic oh. variations in those populations um, that's been one concern for, especially for the Pyrenees. So they actually, um, that's Nicole Qualtieri. I was just going to ask if you had any questions so far. <laughs> <laughs> I have <laughs> a couple that I've been writing. <laughs> <See that>? Good. <laughs> so they, they actually, uh, augmented the, the population in the Pyrenees with some bears from Slovenia where there are very healthy populations. So, and it doesn't, that's the other thing about genetics. And, and this is, um, I hope we get to talk about that a little bit later on as well, but sure. about the genetics of the, the Yellowstone population. There's a lot of discussion about the genetics issues and, um, and it, it, it is a, it, it is a potential concern for these really small populations. Like if you only have a, a dozen animals or so, yeah, yeah. Genetics is obviously a concern. But it doesn't take much to to reverse the effects of that, you know. So an augmentation of of moving some animals from with a, a, another genetic uh, background into a new area um, is is incredibly effective. Yeah. Did you follow the debate? I don't want to get us too off topic, but did you follow the debate about the Florida panther? Yeah. 
Well, I, I, I did some work on oh, Florida panthers, so actually. Like, yeah, yeah. Down to, you know, like we're talking about dozens of animals in Florida, and there being a debate of, of okay, well, let's bring in some from the West, where we got plenty of from them. From Texas, yeah. And then and, and people are like, yeah, but this is the Florida panther. We're going to sort of destroy a, you know, a genetic line. Right. But then, like, okay, sure, but you're just going to lose the whole damn deal if you don't yeah, do something. I mean, you know, I mean like... The, the choice, to me, uh, seemed pretty pretty clear. You know, you bring, either you, bring you risk in. the population, that the only population you have in the East, or you bring in eight Texas cougars and introduce a new genetics... And that's what they ended up doing, of yeah. course. And that population, I, I, I'm convinced that that's, that was the, the saving grace for that population. That was the right move. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Do. About the Texas cougars there, coming in? Were they was, like super cougars? Oh, yeah. Like, like, <laughs> yeah, like, like, yeah, the livestock interest in Florida. They brought in super cougars. <laughs> no, at the, you know, at the, the time, I, nastiest I, Texas cougars. <laughs> I don't think there was a, a real concern at the time because, because the cattle depredations weren't real big deal at the time. They're, they've, in recent years, they've uh, become somewhat of an issue. But, um, it is amazing how, how well that works. You know, yeah. a lot of the g- genetic defects um, that, that were obvious in, in the resident population, you know, king tails and uh, something called cryptorganism, where only one testes descends in the, in the male, which is a, you know, definitely a sign that, that these are not vigorous animals. Um, all that really was reversed. And, oh, wow. uh, and just the introduction of, of eight Texas cougars did, did the job. Did they bring in males or females or both? Uh, I don't know what uh, both, as I recall, but I don't know exactly what uh, what the sex ratio was. And did they pull them from a area? Now we're see we're getting way off topic, man. But did they, <laughs> the, the, one last question: Did they pull them from a wet area? No, I, I, not that I remember. Um, it seems like you're putting them but, in a tough situation. If you're getting you know, them out of West Texas, right, and all of a sudden you're like, "Welcome to the Everglades, buddy." Well, true, but <laughs> but I think um, we we underestimate how well animals can survive. You know, um, it's the same. We we've seen that uh, with, with bears too. You know, you, you reintroduce bears to new areas, and they tend to do very well. They figured, they're they they're incredibly out. adaptable. I got a friend who's working on a project where they're looking at taking coyotes. That live like let's say there's a cow that lives in a alpine environment. Yeah, and when you move them, where does he set up shop? Does he travel long ways to find what he recognizes as you know home? Right. Or does he just go? Well, I'm here now, and now I'm going to figure this out. Yeah. You know, displacement issues. So, all right. So back to the main subject. Hey, man, it's a struggle to find time to manage one's finances. It's a struggle to find time to manage my finances. You go through like a busy week and the last thing you want to do is spend time budgeting, you know, your expenses and tracking down customer service teams to cancel old subscriptions you're paying for that you don't use. But now you use rocket money and does all of that for me. I'll tell you, this this happens all the time in our family because like something will come out that we want to watch and they lure you in with a one-month trial and you're like, oh, you know, I'll I'll do the one-month trial then I'll come back and cancel then I can watch this whole thing. And then like you don't. You forget about it and and then a year goes by and you've been paying these guys 12 bucks all year and never watched a single thing. This finds that stuff and gets rid of it for you. Rocket Money is a personal finance app. It goes in and finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions. It helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings instead. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions. 
saving members up to $740 a year when using all the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Again, rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. The single most valuable tool I have for chasing turkeys next to my scatter gun is the Onyx Hunt app. If I'm hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. If I'm not hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. I'm always using Onyx. I live by that stuff. I can't tell you the number of birds this app has put me on by allowing me to easily find new areas to hunt. It's invaluable. I use it all the time. Even properties I know super well. And I'm at my buddy Bubbly Doug's house. I'm using Onyx, and I've hunted this place a million times. With their compass mode, I can pinpoint exactly on the map where a gobble rang out from and then figure out the perfect spot to set up. Meaning, if I'm sitting there, let's say I'm at Bubbly Doug's, and I'm in the navel, and I hear, I'll like instinctively pull up Bubbly Doug's place on on X, and I'll look at the topography, and I'll be like, oh, that sucker must be over in that little opening over there. Waypoints also, and the ability to share them, okay, comes in handy every spring. Whether that's revisiting old waypoints where I've been on birds before or sharing them, to buddies to help put them on birds. This app will help you find more turkeys. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you too. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt this turkey season. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? you need a brake light fixed? you need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash MeatEater. Now, they got ESA protection. Right. 1975. Now we've got, in, in, in your area, the area under your, um, under your review, under you know, where you do your research, We've now got four times as many, about 800, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about that number first, because a lot of people like to say probably many more, or they like to say probably less. Why is it hard to tell? Why is it hard to tell us how many there are and how accurate do you think the, whatever the fashionable number is right now, how accurate is the number? Yeah, so the, the estimate for 2016 is uh, 690 bears. Okay. Uh, that's down a little bit from, uh, from last year and from the year before that. But um, the population has been pretty stable at pretty much the same level since the early 2000s. Now, that number we know is, is a likely an underestimate. And, likely an underestimate. Yes, and that's because... The method that we use um, basically has an underestimation bias um, built in. Because you'd rather be wrong that way than wrong the other well, way. Well, it wasn't necessarily by design. It, 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 it just so happened. Um, 
because of the, the, the type of methodology that we use is based on uh, looking at unique females with cubs of the year and, and separating sightings of those individuals out from, uh, from one family group to another. And, and some of the, the criteria that were established early on were distance criteria to separate them out. So if they were, if the, if you have two observations of a female with two cubs, you know, you don't know, um, that whether they're the same animal or not. And so to separate them out, they, in the beginning, they, they used the distance rule that when they, they established this, this technique, they, they used a distance rule of 30 kilometers. Okay. And so if they were more than 30 kilometers apart, they had to be different females. Well, as the, so 15 miles. Not even. Yeah, not not even then. Yeah. Um, no. What? Yeah. No. Uh, more one, like twenty one miles. Point, actually, yeah, closer point, to one point seven kilometers per mile. Right? Yeah. So say roughly, you know, twenty miles or so. And and so what what happened as the population grew and densities became higher, um, that that rule set wasn't yeah. necessarily as applicable anymore as uh, as it was in the beginning. I'm so, with you. And so as the population grew, that bias became stronger, that underestimation bias. And so we may be underestimating by as much as, as 40 to 50% right now based on... You want to know why I think you're off? Because this spring we glassed up seven in a couple of days. And I'm like, how could we have seen such a significant percentage of the bears just... In yeah, one drainage. <laughs> in one drainage. No, absolutely. And, I'm joking, and, of course, but it is like it's. I can imagine it's difficult. Yeah, we it, it is, and and so historically, you know, in, in when they started developing this technique, um, it was at a time when when the population was in its first stages of recovery. So yeah. there was a lot of reasons to be conservative. Yeah. Now that that you know, from a biological standpoint, we've reached recovery. Um, we can it. it Makes sense to move to to a technique that uh, that is just accurate um, and doesn't have that built-in uh, underestimation bias. But what about when you check? So let's say you take the number. Well, tell me the number again. Six fifty-six. Six ninety for for two thousand sixteen. Okay, but when you look at so you got your method to use now. When you when you look at like hair trapping and genetics, does that wind up giving you some other wildly off number, or does it sort of back up the figure? I mean, well, aren't there like multiple ways to look at it and yes. see if they sort of line up and correlate? Well, so, um, yeah, a couple of points there. That So we, we, we have not done a DNA uh, sampling study for the entire ecosystem. Okay. Um, Why? Is it expensive and hard? It's, you know, we calculated at the time. So what, 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 um, what Kate Kendall did in the, in the Northern Continental Divide ecosystem was a was a sampling that that really covered the entire ecosystem with DNA sampling. That was a hugely expensive effort. It was it was a valuable information, but there was only one estimate. You know, it's it's an estimate for the population size that's very reliable. Uh, very, did it refine the understanding in that area, or it's, did it yes, back it up? It's it refined the understanding of of that area for two thousand four. And that's okay. what the estimate was for. We we decided in Yellowstone no, well, not got, to do that. But I got a question for you. What was the estimate before that work, Kate Kendall? What was the estimate before that work, and and did that did that work make it go up or down? You know, I'm not sure that there was a truly a a reliable okay. estimate right. uh, prior to that. So it was, so a, that, it was a question mark. That was really kind of the, a benchmark number. I see. I see. And so that number has now been used by uh, by Montana Fish, Wildlife, and Parks um, to 
based on on the information they have, they can make population projections of what what level of population growth that population has experienced, and you so can use a, that 2004 number to kind of extrapolate into the future. Yeah, you know where where the population might be now. So people liked that work and generally accepted that work. Yes, accepted the, that number. Yeah, the, we uh, and at the t- I wasn't in Yellowstone at the time, but but at the time that the, the study team made the decision. Um, or discussed whether they should be pursuing something like that. And can you can you explain the process real quick? What we're talking about? Yeah. So what what that involves is basically setting up um, uh, what we call hair snare corrals. So it's basically uh, barbed wire um, that's that you know basically a single or two strands of barbed wire uh, that's stretched uh, around four corner trees. Um, it's a, it's a pretty small area, you know, by a little, you know, 15 by, uh, let's see. Now I'm getting my metric and English messed up because I'm trying to be. No, no, don't worry about it. <laughs> so it's about, I don't want to slow you about down. five to five by five meters. And, um, and so with a, with a lure in the middle and the idea is that uh, the bear will be attracted to the lure. It goes typically under the, the barbed wire to, to get to the lure. So the, the, the height of the barbed wire is pretty critical, but it goes under the barbed wire, leaves a tuft of hair on the barbed wire. You can collect that. Yeah, and if anyone and, who's ever walked along a barbed wire fence looking at the bottom strand or top strand yeah. knows that there's a hell of a lot of hair. In, exactly. <laughs> in things, and yeah. so it's, it's really, a, it's a great technique. You know, it's non-invasive. It, it doesn't affect They don't even animals. know what happened. They don't even know. No. What do you use to bring them in? Uh, blood lure typically mix, and in some cases people have mixed it up with uh, with fish uh, remains and, and and stuff like that, so it, it's a pretty stinky, mm-hmm. stinky mess, and that's that's the whole point, of course. So uh, it attracts uh, just by scent, it attracts grizzly bears from. So you catch some of his hair, yeah. So we get the hair. Um, the roots of of the hairs have DNA in them, and that's that's sufficient if if you get you know five to ten hairs. Typically, that's sufficient to actually get. A DNA, a DNA sample and, and get a basically a DNA fingerprint of that individual. And then the idea is that, that you then can calculate not only the, the, the number of unique individuals that are visited, but you can also do what we call uh, capture-recapture analysis, where you, you catch that individual once and then how many times do you catch it in, in, in future uh, sampling periods. And that will tell you how how effective you are at detecting them yeah like if you catch every bear's hair 20 times you'd probably get the feeling that you're catching most bears but if you have a lot of bears you only caught their hair once the assumption is probably that you're missing some exactly mm-hmm. yeah and that's and and the techniques are, are the statistical techniques are based on estimating the proportion you're not you're 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 not sampling essentially yeah that's that's the tr- that's the hard part that's right and so um the, the dna sampling is has really been great for a lot of wildlife populations, and that, that was actually invented uh, by by some of my colleagues in Canada uh, on, on working on brown bears. So that's okay. really where the the original idea came from uh, for this DNA sampling. And so, it's, but they decided it's against wildlife it. management. So why decide against it? I mean, I, I, well, I, I, I don't care. I mean, I'm not saying like that. Like I think it was the wrong decision, but like, what was the argument? No, that's uh, that we, you know there, there was a lot of discussion uh, within the the study team on that, and we calculated to do something similar to to what was done in the Northern Continental Divide. It would cost probably close to eleven million dollars. Okay, um, and would Is only that a lot. That's a lot. Yeah, uh, I mean that's that's for your agency. That's way that's beyond any any budgets that that we could deal with. I see. Um, it would require 
something like um, you know a, some sort of congressional um, funding source to, to to really make that happen, and and that's uh, that's like like what they did in in the Northern Continental Divide, and uh, that's I just don't see that as a as a reasonable way to move forward. Um, so the cost was was a major issue. The logistics of covering such a large ecosystem were a major issue. Because the area here, now, uh, just as we talk about this, so correct me any part of this I'm wrong. Grizzly bears in the lower 48 are divided into six distinct population segments. Yeah, of which... Um, Five have bears, one Exactly, yeah. 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 One of these distinct populations. So you have the Northern Cascades. Yeah, we got Northern Cascades. Has some small number of bears or not. Who knows how many? Uh, probably fewer than, maybe fewer than six. Yeah. You know, but that's, that's. And they're flirting with the border in BC. Exactly. Yeah. And then you have, um, East Central Idaho. Selkirks. Selkirks. Is what has. you're referring to, right? Is that okay? No, I, I guess I'm asking. Oh, Bitterroot. Or you're talking about uh, no, Bitterroot Selway? What's the one that the Bitterroot Selway is not does not have them? Correct. But it's regarded as a potential location for yeah. them. Yeah, and there were um, uh, reintroduction plans back in the early yep. to late '90s, early 2000s that eventually uh, were not implemented. Um, but they're going to wind up there. Well, things are. I mean. Things are looking as good now as, as they have in a long time yeah. for, for bears to actually get there. Um, but the reality is that it's, it's going to take quite a bit of time. Uh, and the first bears that would get there are probably going to be males only. And so for, for females to actually, you know, actually make it down there, that's, it's, it's still probably going to need some, uh, management. And that so that means translocating animals, and then that's for the foreseeable future. I don't see that happen for yeah. the e- ecosystem. So there's one uh, distinct population segment in Washington. The one we we're just talking about that does not have bears is Idaho, Montana, right. Northern Continental Divide. Yep, is which is by all means uh, a healthy population. Yep. Bob, uh, that's Bob Marshall, scapegoat, yeah. uh, Glacier National Park. Glacier National is, Park. Is, is really kind of the core for, for that area. And then the greater Yellowstone ecosystem, Idaho, Montana, Wyoming. Yep. And then we have the uh, Cabinet Yak ecosystem. Which also has bears. Which also has bears. About 45 is, is the best guess. And that's extreme northwest Montana and Idaho. Yep. Or, Idaho Panhandle, extreme northwest Montana. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, there, there's... Breachers, uh, Fish and Wildlife Service is doing a lot of research there, and they have a good handle on on the population. Um, and some recent DNA work there confirmed that 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 population is, is around forty five or so animals. Uh, okay. So when you were looking at doing the hair trapping count, was it just that your area was so much bigger than the north? Is it bigger than the Northern Continental Divide area? Um, you know, it's the currently the distribution is is a little bit more. I think. Um, it's it's also I think parts of it are are, are more inaccessible. There's there's probably I mean we I know we have the the Bob Marshall Wilderness in Northern Continental Divide, but we've there's a lot of uh, wilderness areas on the eastern portion of of Yellowstone. So, uh, so that's accessibility, logis- logistics, logistics, problems, yeah, yeah. logistics is 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 a big part of it. Um, the the other issue that that uh, led the team to decide against it was that that it only gives you a single estimate. You know, it, it just gives you an estimate for one year. And the the feeling was is that 
what the team was already doing was was actually sufficient to keep track of of the population. What do they and, call the system you do use? Well, the so the, the the one method that we rely on primarily is is something that we refer to as the Chow Two method. It's it's basically it's based on those. What's, sightings. The, what's the word? Chow Two. It's a it's, it's the the, the Chow refers to the uh, researchers, the ta- statistician that gotcha. um, who's who whose techniques are behind some of these uh, the, the, the statistical techniques that we use, and so that technique is is based on um, on identifying unique females with cubs. Okay. Um, then we have another one that's that we developed. Um, to address the issue with that underestimation bias, and that's uh, what we call a mark resight technique, where um, we're actually doing aerial, uh, basically systematic aerial surveys twice a year for all the areas in, in the ecosystem, and and try to uh, observe females with cubs. Again, it's still based on females with cubs. What's but, a good time of year to do that? Uh, that's basically summer, um, mid to mid to late summer is when when we do those surveys. That's got to be hit and miss. And it is, and so that technique uh, is based on on observing uh, females with with radio collars, and and it is a little bit mid- hit and miss. And so the the, the problem is that uh, on an annual basis, our sample sizes are are not really large, and so the estimate is more accurate. Um, so it's it's more on target, but it's not very precise. So you can have a, a confidence interval that's way bigger uh, than than any manager would want to use. So uh, it, it makes it really difficult to look at, uh, at, at trend detection over time. And that's, that's what that Chow 2 estimator do, is, does a better job at. So for the time being, we're sticking with that Chow 2 estimator, but we're still exploring ways to But no one would say it. that you potentially know about every female with cubs. Like if I went no. out and saw a female with cubs, some of oh no, okay. So no one's going to say like, oh yeah, that's We know far. about a lot of them uh, yeah. because they're very, you know, they, they, people... Report them to us. You know, we have a lot of agency people out there. We we, we observe them from our uh, from our aerial surveys, so we do get uh, sightings of of the vast majority. I think, um, but we we do use a statistical estimator to again estimate how many we have not observed. But that yeah. that proportion is is relatively small. We do observe a lot of them, but we miss we miss a lot too. So, what is the guess? Like, what's the percentage that you guys think you're missing? Up to forty percent. Well, if uh, yeah, and that's that actually matches with uh, when we do that mark reside technique again. That's still based on females with cubs. Um, the total number would actually uh, almost double from from what we typically have with that that other technique, the, the Chow two estimator. So, um, not not quite double, but but it would put us in in the range of of ninety to. Uh, 95 females with cubs for this past year, for example. And if you extrapolate that out, you, you easily come, come at a total population estimate well over a thousand, over, over 1100 actually. And so the, the real estimate for the population is, is certainly much higher than what, what our official estimate of 690 is. So if you absolutely had to say, right? Under like this, the imagine the most catastrophic thing that could happen to you if you got the number wrong. Mm. Okay, involving death and injury and all every bad thing in the world, and you had to say a number. What would you say? Or just are you not comfortable saying? Because you just don't I, know. <laughs> well, yeah, we. I would have to still say to stick with the six ninety number. Okay, and and. 
and with the the caveat that that we know that that is a certainly by all means uh, going to be an yeah. underestimate. I'm not trying to be leading here, but do you, no, it's, do you it's, know it's not less. Could you be? Could is there a way you're wrong and you have too many? There, there is always uncertainty with with any of these these type of data. Um, there is always yes, I, th- I think it's it's fair to say that there is always a, a statistical probability that that is below six ninety, but that's not as strong as that it's above six ninety. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, because everything else is is pointing at that, yeah. and and this is the this is the the, the, the difficult situation that we're in. You know, with, with our science, we we have a technique that that the managers still want to use and, and is, is being used in, in how we move forward with the delisting, uh, how, the, how the agencies move forward with the delisting. That is now uh, language in the, what is called the conservation strategy, which will be the guiding document after uh, delisting if, if that goes through. And, and so the managers have chosen to, to stick with this conservative estimator. Um, that does not keep us, of course, from trying to come up with a, with a better estimator in the future. And uh, and and for me, you know, that's as a scientist, I we have to we have to have that desire to do better than yeah. what we have now. You can always read a journalist. You can always tell where a journalist stands on the issues because if the journalist fails to in, fails to mention the caveat that there's likely more. You know that they have a vested interest in there being not that many. If the journalist mentions likely more, then you know where they stand politically. It's just a funny, it's a trick you can use. Sure. Now, and, okay. and so the, the, the one thing that's important with that too, you know, uh, you know, we, we, we have that, that number of 690, right? Yeah. And then we have a 95% confidence interval around that. That's a statistical. Uh, estimate of how confident we are in those numbers. So that number is is plus or minus seventy five bears, and so so some people will will take that number and then say so it's it's really not six ninety but it's six ninety minus seventy five, yeah. and that's that's not right. You know yeah. that that all these estimates that it's the central tendency of the data would lead us to to six ninety more than it would lead us to the lower end of that or the higher end. Now the the only added thing here is that we know we've demonstrated in the past with simulation studies that 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 690 is an underestimate that that most likely it's uh, it's much closer to to probably over a thousand individuals okay. and it's and so i'm like- totally confident saying that yeah no, um, but but uh, it also makes it very confusing to the public of course you know because we we have an official estimate of six ninety, but but we we at the same time we keep saying, well, we know that's that's an underestimate, and well, it's, people hate that kind of stuff. Yeah, they want to know how many bears. Yeah, and it's, like like that's the first thing I asked you. We said, and so science is messy, you know, and yeah. uh, and that, that's uh, that that's frustrating for us as well. You know, we we would like to have uh, the perfect estimator, but you know that just doesn't exist. What was your question, Nicole? Um, I was just wondering. You'd have to know some populations, like the park populations, a lot better than, or I don't know, this is just my guess as someone who doesn't know. Um, but would you know those park populations a lot better than like the Madison populations and the Centennial populations and the Absorca? No, not necessarily, actually. That's that's one thing um, that, that I really like about how we've structured our, our, our research and our, our sampling. Um, 
there's really the effort is is pretty equal throughout the entire ecosystem. So uh, it's pretty well distributed, and it's not like that we have a much better handle on on bear numbers for Yellowstone National Park. And in fact, we uh, when we're asked, you know, we we often are asking, you know, what is the the actual population estimate for Yellowstone or for this national forest? So we we don't provide those because we actually don't have those. We have them truly as as a as an ecosystem number, and uh, and that's. Because these these animals, you know, they they cross boundaries all the time, and yeah. so you can't. There there is really no such thing as as, as strictly uh, a Yellowstone National Park uh, population. You know, you know they uh, a lot of those bears do cross the boundaries. You mentioned earlier that the the the, the drop you've seen in the last couple of years is that just part of a normal rise and fall, or, or is that is that linked to some occurrence or? So, yeah. So for you know, and 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 you know, additional years of data will 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 tell us. But um, you know, so some people have have argued that since um, you know, it, two years ago was seven fifty seven, uh, last last year was seven seventeen, and now it's six ninety. And some people would argue that we're in a decline. But we don't look at 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 trends in, in grizzly bear populations over short time periods like that. You really have to look at it over longer time periods. I mean, they, they can live up to 30 years. You know, their generation time is um, close to 14 years now. So to look at it on a, on a three-year time frame is, is, is potentially dangerous because you can kind of overreact. So you have to really look at a longer time frame. If you look at, at uh, the, the variation of that estimate since the early 2000s, um, this still fits within that, that, that realm of, of variation that we have observed in the past. And uh, by all means, all the, all the data are, are indicating that, that the population is, has basically remained pretty constant since the early 2000s. After, so after uh, several decades of increase. What were the, what factors, this is another thing you can't answer in a definitive way, but what factors allowed their in 19 to have 200 in 1975 to having the, you know, the 690, like what factors are, are, are most, is it most safe to say like, thanks to blank measure, the bears were able to increase, or do you think that would have happened outside of federal influence or did it have to do with ESA protections or, or, or if you can't answer it in that way, how would you answer that question? Well, I, I think um, I think ESA protections have helped a lot. Yeah, yeah. Um, it led to um, well. So there's a, a number of factors. I, I think the fact that there was an independent study team that collected all the data and had all the information to to give managers the you know good scientific data to make decisions on. Then, like that in and of itself is helpful. Is very helpful, I think. Yeah. Then the establishment of the interagency grizzly bear committee, which is a policy group that is informed by our science. They make decisions based on our science. Um, that was established in the early uh, 1980s. And they, th- these were, th- this committee still exists, um, deals with all the, the lower 48 populations, but they exist of high ranking, high ranking officials. And they are the type of people that can make changes on the ground. You know, they can direct a national forest or a national park to do this and that to help grizzly bear conservation. And that's actually exactly what happened. What would be an um, so, example of something they would ask? Yeah, a good example. So the, the, the one thing that the study team identified at the time was that, that uh, adult female survival, which is the driving engine of, of any bear population, um, was too low. And how do you define an adult female breeding age? 
Yes. Like they're sexually viable in. Sexually mature. Um, typically at, uh, starting at four or five years of oh, age. man, really? Yeah. yeah. So, you know, they they have relatively low reproduction because of, of first of all, there's a three-year reproductive cycle and, and they don't uh, produce their first litter of, of cubs, typically on average around age 5.8, actually. So, yeah, and meanwhile, white-tailed deer would have cranked out eight. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that, that's, that, that's, there's a big difference there. Yeah. Well, black bears are only two years, right? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why black bear populations can, uh, when their numbers are down, they can recover from, from that quicker than, than a grizzly bear population. That's, that's just pure demographic differences. Yeah. So you identify the importance of those breeding age females. Right. And, and because the mortality of those was, was really, um, too high for, for sustainable levels. So, What was causing the mortality? Well, um, in, in those early days, uh, some of it was poaching mm-hmm. um, that, that was uh, in conflicts with, with livestock. So one of the things that the Interagency Grizzly Bear Committee did was to uh, start closing down livestock allotments within the recovery zone. And, uh, and start to deal with um, bears accessing garbage, you know, so bear-proof dumpsters, bear-proof garbage cans, all that started in, in those early days. To limit conflict. To limit conflict. And, and I think those are the type of, of actions. Uh, Forest Service um, you know, put a lot of effort into closing roads because we know that, that road access typically means lower survival of, of grizzly bears. Um, that's, that's, that's just a given. Like it, it cre- a road creates a higher likelihood that that bear is going to wind up mixing it up Exactly. With a person and the bear is going to be the yeah. one that ends up dead. Yeah. And uh, so it's not necessarily a, a roadkill situation, but it's, it's just access uh, into grizzly bear habitat by humans tends to reduce survival because of poaching, you know, higher likelihood of poaching or conflicts and things like that. So, um, closing down roads, um, and reducing road densities was, was another big aspect of this. So all those actions combined, um, you know, there's no hard data to show a direct cause and effect here, but there's no doubt in my mind that all those actions uh, really made a difference. And that's what helped start the recovery of the population, which, uh, interestingly, after after listing in 1975, the population still kept declining because some of those actions had not implemented uh, been implemented at that time. Didn't really start until the early 80s, mid 80s that they started to implement those. And sure enough, you know, we saw the population started to pick back up in, in the mid 80s, late 80s, and then started increasing through the with very rigorous growth uh, through the 90s. And then started leveling off in, in, in the early 2000s. And some of our research, recent research has indicated that that might simply be um, a result of, of bears kind of reach, reaching social carrying capacity yeah. within their own population. That's what I wanted to ask about. But just for a little background for people. So at, at the time of listing, they didn't sketch out what recovery would look like, if I understand right. Well, other than setting some uh, recovery criteria, like uh, a minimum of, of 500 grizzly bears, for example, within the Yellowstone ecosystem. Or, they did do that at the time. I yes, thought that only did. came later once the distinct population segments came into existence. Well, um, the, the numbers have changed over time. Um, but like in, What recovery might look like has changed over time? A, a little bit. You know, the, the initial numbers um, in the 80s um, were, were a little bit different than the, 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 lay, the, the one... Uh, in 1993, there was a revision uh, and a supplement to the recovery plan, and uh, that's where some of the, 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 the 
recovery criteria were ultimately based on. So yeah. one was you know related to population size, one was related to sustainable mortality limits, and one was one recovery criterion was related to occupancy of uh, reproductive females. Uh, yeah. So not just females with cubs, but also females with yearlings or two year olds. And they've met the the bears in the Greater Yellowstone have been at what's been defined as recovery levels. They've been at that for a number of years, right? Yes. Like how long has that been? Uh, basically since the early 2000s. Yeah. They since have the early 2000s. Yeah, they have been at, at, uh, at, they've met all those criteria. And what was the first attempt that the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service made where they first proposed delisting was 2007? That's, that's correct. Yeah. And so at that time, um, when they did their findings, when people sort of reviewed all the available data, some some suggested that they had not accounted for, I think it was two things at the time. One was cutthroat trout, and then the, the White Park pine epidemic hadn't happened yet, right? Or was it going on? No, it was going on. It was going yeah, on yeah. So that was actually the the bigger one, uh, the, the the white buck pine. The cha- you know changes in food resources yeah. in general, but especially white buck pine. Now let's touch on the trout thing because that always to me has felt a little bit like BS. It can, like that cannot have been enough of a resource to be what was what was propping up grizzly bears in the lower forty eight was eating spawning cutthroats. I'll never accept that that could have been. I I don't disagree. Uh, I I, it, I think you you hit an excellent love, point. People love that story so much, but it's like it's just, it's not if, like if you sa- look it's at, not like salmon runs on the Pacific coast. No, it's it's not at all. Um, I mean, it's and and so in 2013 we did we did this big comprehensive project. Um, we call it the food synthesis report, and that was in in response to the Ninth Circuit Court ruling, which is an appellate court. Um, that that indeed brought up that argument that the Fish and Wildlife Service had not adequately considered the effects of, of climate trout. change and especially white yeah. buck pine uh, as a, as a food source and 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 the effects of other uh, changes in other food resources as well. So we we had a very comprehensive look at that, and and I would agree with you because uh, it's it's one of many. Good resources that bears have access to, and and as we as we found out, um, it yeah, sure it's 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 a, a resource that, that is high calorie. Um, it's available to some bears. That is available to some bears. At the time, the estimate was uh, that might have been around 15 percent of the, the population at the time. Might have actually been fewer if if you know depending on on. They actually, how. had access to the fish. That actually had access to the fish. Yeah. That's right. So it, one thing to keep in mind is we, we refer to it as a kind of a provincial resource. You know, it's only those bears residing near Yellowstone Lake that, that historically took advantage of, of that resource. And it was a month or so long every year. Yeah. Um, and, and sure, for those bears that had access to it, it's, it's a, a great source of calories. But people uh, have fallen in love with that story. I think it's because part of the thing is like, it's, Part of this, uh, it's like this thinking, like this Malcolm Gladwellian thinking where it's like you can always find these little surprise elements yeah. that actually explain the whole planet, you know? 
like, oh, if you want to understand that, all you need to do is understand, yeah. uh, you know, these here trout. And as we, we see with anything in nature, um, and, and certainly with, with grizzly bears, it, it's not that simple. Yeah. And, and for a species that, uh, you know, we've documented more than 260 different types of food that, that grizzly bears consume in, in this ecosystem. I mean, that's, a, that's an astonishing number of, of Rat, different rattle, food. Rattle a few off. Yeah, I was going to say, can you name just some of the more interesting? Well, I mean, so, the, the, you know, the, certainly you have the, the high-calorie ones like cutthroat trout, whitebuck pine, army cutworm moths, and ungulates, right? That those are, by all means, you know, those are valuable resources. But, but they've, I think somehow in, in, in the minds of some folks, they, they've been constructed as essential resources that every bear has to have access to those. And that's, that's not true by any means. Um, not all bears have access to those four resources in every part of the ecosystem. It's, it varies depending on where you are. So what people forget is that we have things like biscuit root and yampa, um, uh, uh, wild caraway, you know, it's an exotic species that bears are consuming in, in Tom Minor Basin. That's, well, that's, that's where they're congregating. I for. mean, you see a hell of a lot of them digging for various species of ground squirrels and marmots yeah. and whatnot. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, you've, you've got that. Um, you know, small mammals, um, they're, they're eating algae in some cases. They're eating, uh, mud, you know, uh, that's, uh, that is kind of, a, totally unique situation um but like a mineral like a mineral rich mud or yes like a, yeah uh, like in some of the thermal areas they've uh was there, in right? the past we've documented them eating you know consuming this it's called geophagy um and it's it's probably yeah for for searching for particular minerals yeah it's is this true? Cabbage, uh, horsetail. Oh, go ahead. Uh, I was just wondering if it's true that the tom minor basin um like i've heard that it's the largest uh, like grouping of bears when they're going for the wild carrier way in the lower 48? Um, actually, I would say that the army cutworm moths is probably the, 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 the larger um, grouping um, because some of those sites you know, can, can have like 25 bears at, at one time. Um, I've seen them but, out at Tom Minor. At, at Tom Minor, it is pretty amazing. I mean, that's, that's a, a you know, vegetative resource that they're after. Um, the roots of, of wild caraway, and then they're, they're digging for some other stuff while they're at it too. But but that that seems to be the, the driving uh, food source they're looking for. And yeah, you can you can see sometimes up to a dozen or more bears there in in, in an evening, uh, which is pretty remarkable. And you know that that's pretty small basin, and for that many bears to show up in that one place, um, that leads you to believe that yeah, there's there's maybe a lot more bears in the system yeah. than, than we think now of. The white the white bark pine issue did strike just from personal observation did strike me as a legitimate concern when you because if you've spent any amount of time on those ridge tops that are coated in white bark pine it's like you've never seen anything like it when it comes to how many animals are when you go from black bears pine squirrels grizzly bears you know Clark's not you know Clark's nut hatches uh, stellars grays right yeah Clark's nut crackers. I mean, it's just kind of amazing who shows up in those places. It is. I mean, it's it's, it's a bonanza. Die, yeah, when those trees started to die off, and also I hunted, I bow hunted elk a lot in white bark pine, so I, I wound up having like a view of it as the same way. If if you spend a lot of time along a stream and you see bears eat salmon, you start to think that all bears eat salmon. I had in my head like, man, if this collapses, um, 
it's the it death, could have an effect. It was like, it's the death of these bears. But again, it's just very personal, anecdotal thing. But, but, and as it turns out, it, it's, it isn't. Um, so what are they all like? So all those bears, like, what are they doing instead? The, and, and that's the, one of the questions that we addressed with, with that research back in 2013 in, in, response to the and, and and by the request of uh, of the interagency grizzly bear committee so one you know a couple of things we looked at that first of all uh, white buck pine did decline you know there, there's there's in some of our transects that we've been monitoring since the early 2000s we've we've seen 75 percent of the adult you know ma- mature trees dying yeah so that's that's pretty substantial that's pretty good nut you ever eat that nut um, you know, I used I've to never, collect them and roast them. It's a pain in the ass, but they're good, man. Yeah, yeah you can use them like uh, yeah. I mean, they're, nuts, they're, yeah. They're, humans can consume them. Yeah. There's not a real market for it or anything. No, it's because it's too like, sticky. Like, yeah, it's very but, sticky uh, work. Yeah, and it's it's funny. You see, on the, when we capture grizzly bears uh, during that time period, you know, they they have their their hair on their paws is kind of matted down and sticky from oh, from, the pitch. from eating yeah, yeah from yeah. eating the, the white buck pine. Um, so one thing we we found was that that bears did respond. And, and use white buck pine habitat less over the, over the last decade. So basically the decade from the early 2000s to the early, you know, 2010s. And, uh, so there was a response, um, where initially they were really selecting for those habitats that, that selection just gradually went down and now they're basically using it in, in proportion to availability, but they're still using it. And so it's still in, in, in good white buck pine years, they're still Taking advantage of that resource, and even even though uh, in, you know we have such we've had such high mortality of white buck pine, there's still a large number of, of viable, healthy trees out there that that do produce nuts. And for whatever reason, we're resistant. We don't know if they're if they're resistant. Um, or got lucky. You know, there, there's a couple of factors. You know, the the the, the mortality of white buck pine was really primarily a mountain pine beetle. Mm-hmm. There's a little bit of blister rust, um, and and some trees may have natural resistance to that, um, and and some may may not. Uh, but it's really mountain pine beetle, and also uh, wildfire have have something to do with it. So, um, with mountain pine beetle, I think some stands eventually just weren't weren't reached by mountain pine beetles, so um, not necessarily that they were resistant to it. They got they got lucky, basically. Yeah, yeah. and so um, you know, bears were used to a system of, of you know, even before this this, this whole mountain pine beetle epidemic, uh, it was still a, a, a annually a very unpredictable resource. So in some years, it, it's it, you had a bumper crop, so it's a masting species, which which means that the, the tree puts out you know, throughout the ecosystem just massive amounts of seeds in one year and almost nothing the next year. Yeah, I think anyone's got an oak tree in their yard. It's like some yeah, years there's exactly. shitloads of acorns in your yard. Some years there's two. Yeah, you know? yeah, and it's the strategy of the of the trees, of course, to to, to kind of uh, make sure that they they reproduce. And uh, if if you produce just a little bit every year, all the squirrels and everybody else is going to eat all the seeds, and you're not gonna not gonna be able to, to reproduce. So the strategy of the the tree is to in one year just produce nothing, and the next year overproduce so that you have small populations of rodents that cannot hammer the, all the all the seeds. Yep. You know, it's a it's pretty smart strategy, of course. Uh, but bears were used to that. You know, that's, that system has been in existence for a long time, of course, um, you know, where you get a good crop maybe about every two to three years. Yeah. So a 30-year-old bear has seen a hell of a lot of years. When he exactly. Yeah. yeah. 
when yeah. he didn't starve to death because there's yeah. no way by And so what we found was that by, by looking at, um, at body condition and, 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 and body fat and, and also uh, consumption of, of animal resources, um, what we found was in year of poor whitebuck pine crops, uh, they would simply eat more animal matter. And, and what, what we're seeing is that as the whitebuck pine has declined, they, they have switched uh, because it's a fall resource, you know, it's, it's the period of what we call hyperphagia where they're just com- consuming calories, you know, something like 20,000 calories a day. Um, and, and so they're just switching to other alternative resources and, and ungulates uh, are, are one of them. And, ungulates. And that includes, um, you know, ungulates left from, from hunter kills, uh, gut piles and, and things like that, uh, at which they're incredibly efficient uh, locating those. Are they good at um, like in the fall months when you don't have you don't have young on the ground? Are they very adept at killing adult ungulates in the fall months when they're not depleted by bad weather? They're not. There's no young around, or is it mo- uh, uh, during is- the ruts primarily? Yeah. So during the bison rut and during the elk rut, that uh, bears do take advantage of of. Um, you know, the, the injuries that some of these animals, uh, ungulates, sustain during the rut. Oh, I see. And, yeah. and so um, that's when we kind of see an uptick in the, in, in, in um, ungulate use. So you're right, though, and, you know, the, what we see in, in, in the spring, of course, is the, the cow, elk calving season, that's black, uh, black bears and, and, and grizzly bears will take advantage of that. Um, they're really pretty efficient predators on, on elk calves, but it's a pretty short season you know it, it it only lasts you know it's really only the first 10 days of of an elk calf that, that a, a grizzly bear has a, a reasonable chance of obtaining yeah, so around memorial day into early june it's good picking yeah. yeah yeah how many do you have an idea of like how many elk calves one grizzly will eat in a season um oh in a season i um i don't have any numbers right off but um i mean it's you know it it could it's possible for a grizzly bear or, or even a black bear population to to affect population growth of, of elk populations um, based on on you know predation on, on elk calves? It's it's um, there, there can be an influence of that, and, and sometimes if it maybe is in combination with, with with having other predators there. So. I'm glad you asked that question because what, what's really interesting, if, if you look at the northern range, you know, the elk population in, in Yellowstone's northern range has, has changed dramatically yeah. from, I think, at the peak it was somewhere around 17,000, 20,000, and, and that number has dropped. Uh, and, of course, there were a lot more wolves out there a number of years ago than there are now. I think um, Yellowstone Park now has, has about, about 100 wolves now. So it looks like we might be reaching kind of some, some sort of stable system where, um, where you know, there's, there's an, there was also maybe some over-harvest um, in, in terms of hunting of, of that population. So uh, A lot of cow hunts. Yeah, so that that number has dropped. The the, the wolf population, uh, the reintroduction of wolves, have certainly have had something to do with that. Um, and then, as the grizzly bear population grew, and 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 especially how they affected elk calves, you know, that probably has has added to to that mix as well. And that's that's probably what's 
or let the, the elk population to do what it what it's done and and drop in numbers and and you know maybe stabilizing a little bit now. And I, I imagine there's also the two large degree is just them learning how to deal with that predator. Yes. I mean, like right now, you haven't been, you know, people haven't been allowed to hunt Yellowstone for a hundred years, right? If you all of a sudden open hunting in Yellowstone, you're going to see a hell of a lot of elk get shot yep. real quick. And then in about 10 years, you're going to find it becomes real hard to shoot elk in Yellowstone. You yeah, know what I mean, right. And then so elk have also responded to to the presence of wolves and, and bears that yeah. way. You know? no, so um, saying, yeah, they just get used to it. So like where, at first, probably, where they hey, might that, have in the early days. Dog? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In the early days, you know, they might drop a, a calf out in the open. And now uh, they're going to they're going to be more in, in forested areas and they're going to be hidden a little bit more uh, because of the pressures of, of uh, bears, for example, and, and, and wolves as well. So, uh, yeah, elk, elk behavior is, is, is changing because of that. Well, they, how, do you know how long they've actively, because they haze bears, don't they, every spring, like in order to essentially get them to change their behavior around people? Because, I mean, animals in the park are still habituated whether like people are walking up to them or not. Yeah, but the, the typical, unless a bear is really causing problems, the, the, the typical response to that is, is not hazing. Um, that's really kind of used in a, as, as a last resort. Um, yeah, so in, in terms of the hazing, what, you know, the management agencies will, will use that in, in some instances, but, but its effectiveness is, is really kind of limited. And, uh, and so what's, what Yellowstone Park, for example, has a the policy that they have adopted with, with grizzly bears near roadsides is that as long as, as they're showing natural behavior and they're, they're not keying in on, on human foods, they just let it be. And I, I think um, that was another uh, really good management decision, I think, is to 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 let that habituation uh, just take place, and you can do that in a national park. Now, that's that's different in areas outside the national park. You know, you may not necessarily want want that type of uh, habituation. Uh, so we we make a, a distinct difference between food conditioning and and habituation. Yeah. And so, if we're talking about habituated bears, typically hazing is is not an uh, is, is is not a tool that's needed now for for food conditioned bears. It, it it might be, and uh, eventually, if that doesn't work, then uh, then removal of that individual is is really your only last choice. Over the last twenty years, say, how many um, how many people have been mauled and killed by grizzly bears? It averages about one or two a year, right? Yeah, in in recent years, but you know, we we went a long time uh, without uh, without any without any at all. Yeah, um, well, maulings. Yeah, so um, let's just say death, fatalities. Um, yeah, in recent years, we've we've averaged close to at least one a year. Yeah, uh, but like I said, there, there was a time period where there really weren't any um, much at all. So it's kind of you know you, you you're dealing with such small sample size. It's always kind of hard to. to to put a specific number on it, but yeah, but, but it's certainly such an acute psychological fear. Yeah, man. it is. Yeah, it's just like everyone talking about it always likes to point out. Um, oh, you know, they, they always go to like what they compare it to: dying by falling off a ladder. They compare it to dying by getting stung by a bee. Yeah, it's just like go tos. The same way if yep. you want to make something seem small in landmass, you compare it to Rhode Island. Yeah. <laughs> right? Or, like, if you want it to seem big, like Texas. Yeah. It's like two Texases. Um, 
But it, but I think that the other thing that plays into it, and I've talked about this in the past, it's like it's a psychological fear. And it's like when people look at what are the odds it's going to happen to you, they're sort of looking at right. the human population in the GYE or wherever, most of whom don't engage in high-risk activities. Right. But when you get down to the individuals who engage in very high-risk activities, such as bow hunters. Yes, absolutely. It winds up being that you know someone or your buddy knows someone who got scratched up by a bear. Yep. And it starts to feel very different. So on one hand, people are telling you like, oh, you got more chance of getting killed by a cat, a house cat, you know? But on the other hand, like, well, you know, I happen to know a lot of people who've been who've mixed who've been scratched up or run over by bears yeah. because I belong to the high risk segment. Yep, I think that's actually it's like talking point. about venereal diseases with people who are, who go who hang out in brothels all the time. Like they probably have a very different view of venereal diseases than people in a monastery. Yeah, you know. So it's like. It really is. Like, I don't like to trivialize That's an interesting it. analogy, but yeah. Well, I don't like to trivialize. I, I, I find myself, and sometimes I'm pointing out, you're not going to get mauled by a bear. Then sometimes I'm going to point out, like, man, I sure do know a lot of people who've been charged by bears or run over by yeah. them. Uh, absolutely. Or know of yeah. a lot of people. Yeah. The context is, is everything there, you know. Now, you yourself, ha- I mean, have you had some run-ins? Uh, no. No. But, you know, as, as I indicated in the, in, the, in the bear spray, when we had the discussion about you know, use of bear spray versus firearms. Uh, in our work, we try to do everything we can to to avoid encounters, and yeah. and we can do things that the hunt, hunter doesn't have the luxury of doing. You know, like shouting and and and, and things like that. As a as a as, prophylactic, right? Like, like <laughs> right, preventative. Action. Yeah, preventative measure. Yeah, yeah. Um, like so. shouting before it's. Before you're actually shouting yeah, at them, making our presence known, basically, yeah. and, and you know, you, as as a as a hunter, you don't have those options. You know, that's uh, yeah, what you so, do. It's just hard to exercise it. Well, yeah, but strategically, no. Yeah. So have you have you have you you've cut loose on with pepper spray on a bear though, right? Or no? Uh, had, no, you, I have. But people on our team have. Yeah. Um, around uh, for you know, for example, when sometimes in in trapping situations, you you're working up a bear, and other bears are, you know, inevitably hanging around, might be attracted to that and come in. And what do you mean inevitably hanging around? Like you well, got a, a, the cubs? Because we're, we're, you know, in, in our traps, we use, uh, we use bait. I see. And, yeah, I got so, so they're always, lured, they're lured to what There's always that attracting. There's, yeah. there's also any time, you know, I think there's, there's a lot more social interactions among bears than we realize. And, and so okay. just having a, a bear in a trap and, and, and being handled uh, might actually uh, attract other animals as well. Yeah. So, um, so we've had situations where, where our field personnel have had to use uh, empty a number of, of uh, bear spray cans on, on bears that were getting too close. Now, my brother's a researcher in Alaska, and he works for a federal agency in Alaska. And they... He used to work for a university, and there the policy there was I, I believe he, he had to have you could you had the option between lethal lethal or non lethal mm-hmm. because he spends a lot of time in aircraft. Um, he tended to carry lethal because dealing with the pepper spray. Like oh, it's when you're flying on when totally you're flying on scheduled yeah. flights. So scheduled flights, you can't have it, right? And then you often land in a place where you're not going to go down to Walmart or whoever the hell sells bear spray. So you're on you're on you scheduled take flights to remote yep. areas, or if you're in a helicopter or in an airplane and that thing cuts loose, you're dead. Oh yeah, I mean, so that's, they tape that's it the to the outside. They tape it to the struts. But anyways, 
various complications made it that he would generally carry the uh, lethal means. And what he carried was well, that's probably the standard is like he carried an 870 with slugs. Now where he works, he's at a federal agency now, and it's they carry lethal and non-lethal. Yes, we do too. So yeah. everything he does, he's got to have that. Yeah, got to go through our, whatever you, know. you got to go through to get that spray there. And it's funny because him living in Alaska, he has boxes of spray because everyone comes to Alaska to visit. They buy spray. Yeah. They can't They'd bring it home leave with it there. them. And so he, <laughs> it's like it looks like they a, like a, a disposal business. area in his garage, you know, of bear spray. So that's what they do now is lethal and non-lethal. And you're obviously encouraged to exercise the non-lethal first, even though they're in an area where there's no serious talk about there being any kind of shortage of bears. I mean, they occupy 90-some percent of their historic range right, in right. the state of Alaska. And here they occupy, what, 5 or 6% of their historic well, range? Well, it's really closer to 2%, 2% in the low 48s. Yeah. yeah, so it's pretty low. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater the single most valuable tool i have for chasing turkeys next to my scatter gun is the onyx hunt app if i'm hunting turkeys i'm using onyx if i'm not hunting turkeys i'm using onyx i'm always using onyx i live by that stuff i can't tell you the number of birds this app has put me on by allowing me to easily find new areas to hunt it's invaluable i use it all the time even properties i know super well and i'm at my buddy bubbly doug's house i'm using onyx and i've hunted this place a million times with their compass mode, I can pinpoint exactly on the map where a gobble rang out from and then figure out the perfect spot to set up. Meaning, if I'm sitting there, let's say I'm at Bubbly Dugs, I'm in the navel, and I hear, Pow! I'll like instinctively pull up Bubbly Dugs' place on, on X and I'll look at the topography and I'll be like, oh, that sucker must be over in that little opening over there. Waypoints also, and the ability to share them. Okay, comes in handy every spring. Whether that's revisiting old waypoints where I've been on birds before or sharing them to buddies to help put them on birds, this app will help you find more turkeys. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you too. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt this turkey season. O'Reilly Auto Parts are in the business of keeping your car on the road. O'Reilly Auto Parts offer friendly, helpful service and the parts knowledge you need for all your maintenance and repairs. If you're confused about what part you need, like what wipers are going to be the best, what replacement headlights are going to be the best, go into O'Reilly and talk to the people that work there because they're great and they're super friendly and they'll get you squared away where you walk out knowing you got the right thing. They've got thousands of parts and accessories in stock, either in-store or online, so you never have to worry 
if you're in a jam. Do you need your windshield wipers replaced? You need a brake light fixed? You need some quick service? They'll help you find the right part or point you to the nearest local repair shop for help. The professional parts people at O'Reilly Auto Parts are your one-stop shop for all things auto do-it-yourself, and you can find what you need in-store or online. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today or visit us at O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. That's O'ReillyAuto.com slash eater. But yeah, we, we carry both too, and uh, and and like you said, you know, what's, our, what's our the, first what lethal option? What's the lethal thing you guys carry? Handguns or, uh, or like the yeah, shotgun? We, we carry handguns, um, but we also um, you know carry shotguns and uh, and forty five seventies. How do you tote your spray? Like, are you real good about just keeping it right handy? Yes. Yeah. What um, do you like to do personally? Like, where do you? Well, um, you know, it's I I. I I have, um, if you're asking about like, no, sorry, have, but, like, a, like actually how do you handle your bear spray? Um, I typically have it, uh, just on my belt. On your waist belt. Uh, yeah. But, um, you know, when I'm hunting, I actually prefer to have the, the chest, the chest halter, you know, yeah. where, where it's on, on your chest. You won't actually have to take it out. You just shoot straight. Oh, through, oh. which, uh, which I prefer. Yeah. Who makes have that? You, uh, you can you can get them at at any place. You know, the, the, it's just uh, it's basically you know same system, but but it's just a, a chest holder. F H F. He right doesn't make here. those. Uh, well, maybe his holster could fit. You know, like onto. So you but you attach it to your backpack strap then? No, I just uh, I have I put that on first and then I put my backpack oh, over it. Yeah, so you, you you always so have you it shoot, on you. Not from the hip, but even if you take chest. your pack off, you still have the the bear spray on you. And that's that's one thing I, what I like about. Have it. you been injured by bear spray? No. Uh, yeah, no. I've seen two, like not, not serious it's not injuries, pretty, yeah. but uh, we were getting ready to go bear hunting, one, hunting black bears, and my brother had his pack laid out, and he stepped on the, busted the nozzle, hosed everything down with bear spray. <laughs> oh, then I got, I got pickpocketed going through a thicket in BC and hosed myself down. I mean, it's not awful, but it's not good. Your pack is done. Yeah. You got to replace your pack. I got a friend up in Alaska that had it cut loose in her car and it totaled her car. There's nothing you can do. It just got punctured. I mean, just everything. Yeah, everything in the car. There's no. Good. Yeah, we've had. Um, I know that uh, that there've been instances with with other federal agencies where people left it on the front dash, you know, in the sun, it burst in the heat, busted. Yeah. Do you? Is it true? There's a rumor that floats around, and maybe you know. Is it true that a woman, a tourist, I think it was in Yellowstone, bought some spray and sprayed it on her kid? As though it was mosquito repellent. I have not heard that one. Uh, I've heard people <laughs> spraying it around one. their tent. I've heard that one. Oh, you have heard people spraying it around their tent. Yeah, yeah. As when like it first a, came as out as a repellent. <laughs> yeah, as a repellent. You know. <laughs> yeah. That's a rough night's sleep. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so if you let's say the goal, let's say you weren't dealing with a uh, with a population that, um, let, let's say grizzly bears are white-tailed deer. Okay. No one's talking about there not being enough of them. There's just no question about their stability. Okay. And your thing was that you were just going to protect yourself from bears. And you could pick. There's lethal or not lethal. You could pick shotgun with slugs or a handgun, or you could pick pepper spray. And nothing to do with the, preserving the animal or helping the animal out. It just had to do with your personal safety. Based on the people you've conversed with and your own personal experiences, what, what would you pick? Uh, I would pick bear spray. Yeah. Because yeah. I think... The, um, you know the, the the key thing about bear spray is you can 
be really poor at aiming and still have a good chance of, of deterring the bear. Um, whereas with, with a firearm, you really have to keep your composure and, and hit that animal. Cause if, if you don't, you know, it's, it's too late. Yeah. And so with, with bear spray, you, you increase those chances and, and the research, you know, that has shown that. Well, I think, I think it's shown in a pretty, in a, in a pretty convincing way yeah. when you look at when they do it. But then again, you're dealing with such small sample sizes that it's hard to get real excited about it. And then people like to point out, like you'll hear, oh, a guy sprayed a bear with bear spray and it still scratched him up. Sure. But then there's a hell of a lot of people that shot guns at grizzlies and shot their buddy. Yeah. And people don't talk about that nearly as much as they talk about exactly. a feller spraying a bear and still getting scratched. Yeah. It's like people like one story more than the other story. Yeah. Yeah. So you're I think exactly there's a right. thing that there's like a thing like, if you're a badass, a gun, you know what I mean? There's just sort of this feeling that there's, a, there's a, maybe a bit of a, a macho thing there. Yeah. You know, when, when in reality, um, I, would, I would feel a lot safer uh, with bear spray alone. You know? for, for me, I think, just because I sp- so much time I spend outdoors, I spend out, so, so much time I spend in grizzly hunting, I'm actually hunt, I'm actively hunting. I'm quite often carrying both anyway. Right. You know, not counting bow hunting. I mean, a bow is, you know, I mean, if you got, if you have time to shoot a bear with a bow, he wasn't a threat. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, or you're one hell of a bow hunter. Yeah. Or you're real good. Yeah. You're a long bow hunter. Maybe would get to have time to get a shot off. Yeah. yeah. So what do you think, like, what, what's the future hold? I mean, do you think we're there? Like, do you think that this is about the proud number of bears we could hope to have and you know, and barring some huge change, some huge societal shift that welcomed bears into areas where they had a high risk of conflict. Exactly. We're probably about where we're going to be. Yeah. I think, um, you know, all the, all the data that we have, and, and we actually, you know, we talked about two ways of, of estimating population. We have several other ways of, of doing that. We look at, at a lot of other things and we never look at one single data, data set. Um, to, to, to draw our conclusions. You know, all, all our conclusions are based on looking at a number of data sets and a number of different types of, of indicators. And you put all that together, uh, the, the, the indication is that this population is at a level where, you know, within the core of the area, we, 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 we just can't have much higher numbers than what we have now. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're seeing these what we call density-dependent effects where uh, this kind of this internal population regulation is starting to take place. So the, the only uh, potential for this population to grow would be to expand, to keep expanding, and for people to allow that. And, and that's, that's, so that gets exactly what you were mentioning. You know, if, as, as long as people were tolerant and, and, and able to accommodate that, uh, there could still be growth. But then you have to deal with the realities of bears showing up in people's backyards. Um, you know, generally most of us, um, would, would not find that acceptable. And yeah, it's the thing I brought up in, in something I wrote once where, um, you know, these bears historically occupied a range that you might think of from where the Missouri River hooks south, that westward to the Pacific coast. Yep. And when when the question of delisting in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem comes up, people will point out like, well, they're not recovered across their entire range. And I point out, well, Golden Gate Park is in a very different situation than Yellowstone yes. National Park. So when we're talking about range-wide recovery, that would include San Francisco and Los Angeles. Exactly, yeah. So it's a, it's tricky. It's like you wind up getting stuck in these. Um, I think a lot of people get stuck in these, 
these utopian views and it's, yeah these you know, ideologies of of you know we, you know we need to have grizzly bears everywhere there's suitable habitat well there may be pockets of suitable habitat that that elsewhere in the, in the west uh, but they're not large enough i mean yeah. look at you look at yellowstone it's a huge area you know it's uh, we we now have bears occupying more than 58,000 square kilometers but very personally i would like to see very personally i would probably draw like if you if you mapped if you were able to put people's perceptions of suitable habitat on like a number line or some sort, I would probably put it. I would probably declare more areas suitable sure. than than your average American. Yes, because of generally like wanting more bears around. Like I look at the Northern Cascades thing, and and I know there's varying views on. It. I look at the Northern Cascades area in, in the state where I live, and I'm like, yeah. I, like I get it. There's there's conflict, but in my mind, if if I was like king of the world, right, I'd be like, let's go for it. Yes. And I would, there's a handful of places where I would say, let's go for it. But I think that in other places, it's really hard. Like Wyoming holds more of the bears than anybody else of the GYE, and I think that when the the the, the powers that be in Wyoming look at the map, I think they politically feel like they're kind of filled up. You know, they've got them where they can have them. Anywhere else is just going to lead where to a socially lot acceptable. of, yeah, it's going to lead to a lot of conflict. Yeah. And, yeah. and we're seeing that, so, you know, the, 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 the range expansion that we've seen, and we've seen continued range expansion, even with, with population level in the core kind of leveling out. Um, but we're seeing more conflicts specifically in those areas. So we're getting more livestock conflicts there. Like this year, we, we had a number of bears, um, you know, that were just uh, killed through accidental uh, in accidental type situations, like um, in one area. Misidentification with black bear hunters, you mean? No, in, oh. um, in, in, in uh, where they're encountering new dangerous situations. Oh, so okay. in, in this case, it was an irrigation canal. We had three bears drown in an irrigation canal this How year. How the hell did that happen? Um, it's uh, some of these canals. Are, this is in, uh, in in Wyoming, so east of of Cody, so okay. well outside what we would call you know typical suitable habitat, um, and and these irrigation canals are are pretty large, have really heavy high flow to it, and um, steep and walls, like steep, steep walls, steep yeah. So steep uh, concrete banks. Oh, and, I, I got and, you. Ban- and and so. Bears got into it probably because there were other animals in there that, that they were, you know, ungulates or, or cattle that they were trying to go after. Made it in there, then got sucked by the current and couldn't, you know, because the walls are, are yeah. concrete, couldn't get out. Three of them. Three of them. And I think it's an indication of the type of situations that we can expect more as their range keeps expanding. And it's also an example of, uh, of, of, of that we should expect higher mortality rates in those areas. And yeah. that's, that's why we make a distinction between this, this central area, the core area where, where we have the suitable habitat, which we refer to as the demographic monitoring area, and areas outside. You know, more, we can expect a lot more mortalities outside of, of that core area of habitat um, simply because there's more situations where bears can get into trouble, even accidental deaths like that or cattle predations and, and things like yeah. that. So do you think it's possible that like in 50 years, is it plausible or possible, I guess they mean mostly the same thing, that in 50 years we could have a situation much like we have now, that we have – Six, seven hundred grizzly bears that live 
in this area and it's just kind of been that way yeah i think that's i think that's that's very it possible it doesn't have to be moving in these wild oscillations no no i mean there there will be some oscillations you know as you, as you can expect that for a population that's that's kind of you know occupied most of the the suitable habitat um, there will be years that that the population will kind of dip down, and there will be years that it it will be higher than where we are now. Um, but with proper management, you know, scientifically based, informed management, uh, I'm I'm convinced that that this population can be maintained at this level for the foreseeable future. You know, do you feel that um, do you feel that we're culturally doing a good job of of scientific manage, management from your perspective or do you feel that there's a lot of pressure um political and social pressure to sort of tell people certain things that they want to hear or do you feel like there's freedom to do your work in the way that you guys see fit in terms of our our work i i feel like we we are uh, allowed to be completely independent and and i i strongly feel that the manager's Take what we say seriously. Yeah. Um, they they do not question our, our findings. They uh, I think we we have a lot of credibility with the managers and and the, the public at large uh, about our, our data. And there's certainly uh, individuals and groups that uh, that that are critical yeah. of our work. Um, that's going to happen with with anything uh, you're doing with, with dealing with an iconic species as, as grizzly bears in Yellowstone. But you you don't feel that someone says, "You tell me what I need to hear, I'll find someone that oh, will no. tell me." Oh that, no, I, I would that would not I would not be in this position if 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 that were the case. Uh, that wouldn't do. yeah that that would not be acceptable for me because as a, as a scientist, I need to be able to be completely independent of of any sort of political influence and uh, i would i would i would not accept that at all yeah um and i would certainly let that be known so yeah that's it's it's nice to be working in a situation where you are working with with the with the managers and the management agencies but not um but we're not getting directives as uh, other than hey investigate this particular thing because we we need more information on this to make decisions uh and then and when we come back with with that information that that information is seriously considered and that's that's actually the for me as a researcher the, the gratification of, of working here you know when, a lot of times as researchers we we kind of we work in isolation from from managers and yeah. um and that certainly I, I would be the first to admit that was the case when i was working with black bears and and so Working with with this study team and working with with uh, with the interagency grizzly bear committee and the managers on that committee and the subcommittees of that um, has been really satisfying because uh, for the first time in my career I actually feel like the, the the people that that can make changes on the ground in terms of management and and and, and managing the population are actually listening to the, the scientific findings, which I think that's an ideal setup for, for doing good management. Yeah. And you've been at this how long? I've been at this uh, for over 25 years now. Yeah. So almost, and, almost 30. And just in the last deck or when did you start? Basically the last five years. Last is, five years, you feel like it's finally happening this way. Yeah. Yeah. Where, where, because of the, because of the the system that it was set up, you know, with with the study team doing independent research, that research being um, informative for the, the decision makers on the interagency grizzly bear committee, who are able to implement it in 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 the real world, you know, that system was set up for for that reason, and uh, you know, there's really not many 
species or, or populations where I can think of where, where it's so structured. You know, it's by design it was, it was done that way. Yeah. Uh, and in most other cases, you know, researchers kind of, like I said, they, you know, we, we kind of tend to work in, in isolation from, from a lot of managers. Um, not always, but uh, this, the, the way it was set up was, was really an ideal situation. What's the next bear you're going to work on? Uh, this will be the last bear I'll, I'll probably... Then what know. are you going to do? <laughs> Just stick around? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, so you're this. into it now? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, this, I this. mean, if you look at it as far as sort of what has the... What sort of captured the popular imagination, you're there. Yeah. Um, it's a, I mean, it's, it's, it's got a, there's a for, lot of relevance, man. You know, there's not a lot of bear jobs in the world, you know, <laughs> and, uh, and for a, a bear scientist like me to work on, you know, grizzly bears in Yellowstone, that's kind of the epitome of, of uh, what, what I could have ever hoped for. So uh, there's every reason uh, for me to, to stay here until I retire. Yeah, that's my intention. Yanni, got anything you want to add? Well, yeah, it's like uh, we're always like all you guys do, all the, all the bi- biologists and scientists that we I- I talk with, you guys do such a good job of saying that, like, you know, I'm in it for the research. But obviously, like, you love the bears, right? You oh, know, absolutely. You love them. So, uh, but I know that your goal is to first and foremost to get good research and not let the emotions, you yep. know, muddy the waters. Um so, like, is it a success now where it is? And if in 50 years we're at the same level, would, it, would you consider it a success? Or do you not even, yeah. like, rate what you do that way because you just you can't look at it in success and failure from a personal standpoint? Um, no, I, I think I, 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 I still look at it from a biological standpoint. And so uh, regardless of, of what the legal status of the population is uh, now versus the future, you know, 50 yeah. years from now, if we if we are still at this at this level fifty years from now, I would still I would say that that is a total success. That would that would be a, an incredible success if, yeah. if if that can be done, um, because really we we have reached biological recovery in, in, in my opinion, yeah, and that's that's just based on scientific data and and nothing else. So regardless of of whether um, you know delisting happens or not, it's it's the the. The biological fact is that every uh, everything indicates that we have a biologically recovered population of grizzly bears in Yellowstone. I guess that's kind of a follow up. I don't. It might take too much time. But what's just? Can you give us like the latest on delisting and like where it's? What's well, right um, so, probably let, let me let me quick point out what that means. So, um, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has for the second time proposed that grizzly bears be delisted. That they that their federal protection under the Endangered Species Act, um, that that end and they return to what's called state management. Yeah, now, the authority the, for management. Yeah, we, but the states, however, in, in the process, the states however, have to come up with management plans that are acceptable to the feds, and that, that's part of the delisting process. So when someone says delisting, what they mean is that would be one of very few. It would be one of about 2%, I think, of the species that make it onto the endangered species list that are then taken off because of recovery. Animals get taken off in various ways. Some have been removed from ESA protection because they simply went extinct. Some have been removed from ESA protection because they figured out that they didn't, they didn't belong there in the first place. Um, it's just they were operating off poor data. Some have been removed due to taxonomic lumping and splitting where they had listed a thing 
thinking it was you know its own subspecies and then realized that it's part of a of a, of a different population or that they went and found other unknown populations and realized that in fact the animals were not as hard up and then some number uh bald eels being one of them have been removed just simply from recovery right. alligators so so yeah there's a proposal now to do with grizzlies what we do with alligators what we do with bald eagles and say the ESA worked, it functioned as the way it was meant to function, it's a two-way street, recovered species are meant to be removed from listing, and, and we're facing that now, but that will be litigated by, um, that will be litigated for, I don't know, a decade or more, unless, uh, yeah, unless it's good. they'll propose delisting and someone's going to sue them. Yeah, and so the, drag yeah, the, the the delisting has been proposed. Um, the lawsuits are lining up, the, the, presumably. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, the agencies at this point have uh, are ready to sign what is called the conservation strategy, and so that will be the the, the post delisting uh, management guidance, basically. And uh, and and so most of the pieces are are in place at this point now because of the administration change, there might be some delays. So we, we you know we might be looking at at the middle of next year before uh, the final rule uh, to delist would come out. And then will that go through its own comment period? Uh, no, that will be the final one. That's so the, oh, the, oh, the, so the comment, middle of next yeah. year might be the final. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So the comment periods have already uh, yeah. occurred. Um, and, uh, and so that, that the fish and wildlife service is still working on addressing those, those comments because every, every substantive comment have to, has to be addressed. So, yeah. uh, that's, that's quite a task. And, 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 you know, they tried it in the past and, and it was deferred, you know, in 2007, I guess it got deferred for eight or nine years while they looked into answering some more questions. Yeah. Well, the, eventually I think the, the, Ninth Circuit Court decision came out in 2011. So, yeah, it was. It, it's. I expect um, any litigation on this, uh, if if a, a new delisting rule, final rule does come out, um, litigation will likely happen, and, and that we might be looking at a similar time period of, of four to five years um, before any any final you know, decision comes out of that. I asked someone what one of the legal strategies might be, and they pointed out that. Um, you know, there's some technical strategies you can take where the um, the creation of distinct population segments happened after the listing, and so that if you're trying to delist, because they're only like like again for, for listeners, they're not trying to delist the grizzly bear in the lower 48. They're trying to delist one population segment, right. so they're trying to delist a population of grizzly bears. So they're trying to delist grizzly bears in a you know in a definable geographic location about you know like we said earlier like maybe you might consider like the size of indiana if one of the bears that lives there should take a major hike and wind up safely outside of that thing he's covered by the esa because the esa applies to because the the, the distinct population segment is just one little spot now a strategy they're saying they might use to thwart this um there, there are a lot of people, and this is just me talking personally, it's us with our guest. Um, there are a lot of people who use the ESA as something called the Favorite Animal Protection Act. And um, people who, use, who like to think of the ESA as the Favorite Animal Protection Act, one of the things that they'll do is they will um, question that 
distinct population, question the sort of legality of creating distinct population segments. So it might not even come down to like, are there enough bears or whatever? It might just come down to legal wrangling over definitions right. and, and uh, procedural stuff. And thankfully, none of that, none of that affects you, right? Uh, no, not really. Um, you, just, you do your job. Yeah. We, you provide we, information. We provide information and uh, we'll continue to do so. Um, and, and the Fish and Wildlife Service has addressed that, that distinct population segment issue yeah, oh, okay. uh, within their proposed rule um, and, and you know, used all the, the biological information to, to make that argument. And, and I think by all means you could argue this is a distinct population segment. Oh, I think it's like... It's, you know, it's, it is still an isolated population. management... I mean, we do it all the time. Mont- like Alaska is divided up into what thirty some or twenty some game management units. I mean, like it's a thing we do as humans when talking about animals is that we sort of try to break up landscapes in the way that makes yeah. sense. Now, when we drew state lines, we drew state lines almost arbitrarily along latitudinal and longitudinal lines. But oftentimes, when we're talking about animal populations. It's a little more informed and nuanced about landscape features. Right. But that's all, that's pretty new thinking. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I think it wasn't until like the early 80s. And so we kind of said, okay, we don't need to manage white-tailed deer by county anymore. Yeah. We should be managing them by these landscape chunks or areas. Well, I think it happens all the time. Frederick Jackson Turner, he, he I think it was him, the environmental historian who proposed that we drew states all wrong. And he thought we should have drawn our states as watersheds. And he said, like, state politics would have been a lot easier if we'd have drawn them in the way. Instead of just, like, striking the West, these, yeah. these straight lines up and down and gritting off, you know. And he said it just makes it hard for, for group cohesion, yeah. you know, and different, different things. Because imagine, like, even take us, like, we're sitting right now in Montana where you have, the, 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 you have part of the state, the Great Plains, and part of the state, the Intermountain West. And just in, in his mind, we got it. We got it wrong. Right. <laughs> you know, we drew it up. So, Nicole, anything? Any last thoughts? Does the IGBST still stick around if the bears are delisted? Yes. Yeah. That's your agency. So, yeah. So yeah. that is uh, that is our, our group, our, our your interagency agency. Our interagency agency, yeah. yeah. Our group of uh, eight different agencies that work together. So there's... Um, yeah, and that's that's also kind of written into that conservation strategy. There's um, you'll you'll still continue to we will still continue to do basically what we do right now, and at, at basically the, the the same level. I see. Um, and and to my knowledge, my my agency is committed to to keep funding this this effort because it's it's such a uh, high priority population. Well, I think it's really cool that you guys have so much transparency. I mean, when I go onto your website, like I can look at the mortality of every single bear right. that you guys have recovered, like figure out, I had read about those bears that had been in the canal. And then you actually see like how many are human caused, how many are like maybe bear on bear, like where you don't yeah, know. Natural causes. And I would just, I would encourage if people are interested in this, you can read the whole recovery plan. And I know around the time that the Bozeman commenting was going on, we were talking about it in some groups that I volunteer in. And so I read the whole recovery plan and it gave me such a better idea of how bears would continue to be managed and how the states could take it over. And so like if you actually just go onto their website, there's so much just incredible information there. People don't want to go learn a whole bunch of shit. I did. (laughs) It's a lot easier just to sit in the bar and be like, just sit in the bar and be like, they don't know what they're doing. But you hear so many people around here like just say stupid things. I mean, the reason that I, I don't know. You mean to tell me (laughs) that people in Montana go spouting off about grizzly bears without knowing the full story? Come on. I think it's. Come on. 
simple story. <laughs> you mean to tell me? Well, that's you know, for for us as <laughs> as researchers, that's always the the the, the challenge when we when we uh, get our our inevitable critiques from uh, from some directions and. And uh, you know what people tend to focus on is, and and then what people tend to do is kind of cherry pick certain things and take it out of context, you know. But but as a team, our our approach has always been: we look at everything combined. We look at the big picture, and we look at longer time frames and, and things like that that are relevant to the, the species that we're studying. Yeah. And uh, and if you do that, you you could come to you come to different conclusions than when you look at, at a single data point like this this idea that that the population is declining because it's 27 bears fewer than last year. You know, I mean, we, when you look at the confidence intervals, that just doesn't that conclusion doesn't make any sense and it's not supported by the data. But that's those are the type of of uh, ideas that that you hear people throw out right now yeah. and it's and it's it's really not based on the on the best information that we have the best information that we have says that it's well within the the, the type of variation that you expect over the last uh, 15 years so. now you could let that be your concluding thought or you could add a concluding thought is anything we haven't touched on uh well the, the one thing that we haven't touched on which um which I think is an important issue is is this whole idea of of genetic connectivity that's, oh. that's been brought up. Oh man, we didn't get into that. Yeah, that's that's been brought up uh, a, a lot in in the comments. One of the things being that the bear that we need to have corridors. Yep. But that, that the bears and the that these bears in these different population segments are able to interchange. Right. Right. And so you know we've we've done some. Uh, work genetic work in, in recent years, and we we've, we've we have a huge sample size of bears that we have genetic samples of, and, and we know the history of those bears. and And so, um, what we were able to determine from that is that um, even though genetic diversity is a little bit lower in, in Yellowstone than than other populations, because it is an isolated population, you you cannot get more diversity in an isolated population. You know, your mutation doesn't doesn't take care of that. Um, but what we found was that that it hasn't declined uh, over the last 25 years. Uh, there's, there's there's no indication of of decline in, in genetic diversity. There's a a strong indication that the number of individuals that genetically are contributing to the population is is increasing, has in, in fact increased three to fourfold over the last 25 years. So those are really good indications that genetically. Um, there, there are no major concerns right now mm-hmm. at this population level. And, and so if you would ask me, do we need to have connectivity with other ecosystems? My answer would be, yes, it might be desirable for, for the long-term future, but it's hard to argue based on what we know right now that it's essential before delisting or, or any, any, anything yeah. like that. Um, because genetically things look Pretty pretty good right now. You know how you're talking about how people cherry pick various part pieces of this to, to paint the picture they want to paint? Yep. I like the connectivity argument because it services my greater goal. Right. Be like, oh, sure, I love the idea of establishing great wildlife corridors between we all do. the Bob Marshall complex and the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. And if that were to happen because someone pointed out the importance of genetic exchange, I'm like, I don't care how it happens. I just want it to happen because I think it's a step in the right direction just generally for wildlife. I agree. So 
that's a case where I would be guilty of cherry picking. Yeah. Because I'm like, if, I, if it's that reason, I, yeah, great. If but not, so, I'll find a different one. Well, there have been <laughs> sightings in the Pintlers, and there are two sightings in the Big Hole this summer. Yeah. And, like, there haven't been bears sighted there since the early 1900s. Young, young males, right? Well, we, we don't even know that in oh, some okay. cases. Um, but presumably um, males and, and presumably younger ones. Those, those are the, the animals that are... Supposedly a mother with cubs was seen in the Pintlers. Which oh, really? Is, uh, around where my family has had a cabin for a long time. So it's a... I don't know. It's pretty That's interesting. That's right. Yeah. And, and so, uh, I mean, that, that would actually that, that'd be pretty amazing, you know, because that's, that's the thing about, um, about range expansion and, and, and bears eventually getting into the, the Selway bitter root. You know, it, it's, it's going to require those females. And, and, f- and female bears just expand their range pretty slowly compared to the males. You know, the, so the, the, much of the expansion that we've seen into eastern, uh, on the eastern portion of the ecosystem, for example, has been really driven by, by males. And, and what, we, what we see is that, that females will, will lag behind. It might be as, as many as, as 10 years behind. Um, but, it, but it's still occurring. But it, the, the point is that that's, with females, it's just going to take a much longer time period to eventually reach the, a, a place like Selway Bitterroot. And, and so having the, certainly, that's why I say it's desirable if, if, if the, the habitat connectivity was such that that was actually feasible. But if you ask me, and this, this is where, again, you know, where, where some people don't want to hear my answer simply because I'm just relaying a scientific fact, is if, if you ask me, is it essential for this population? Yeah. No, right now, the, oh, I, I can't say that. I, I, I just, based on our data, I can't say that it is absolutely essential for this population to have that connectivity. Yeah. I'm surprised that some enterprising young vigilante hasn't uh, culvert trapped a sow with some cubs, <laughs> and under the cloak of darkness, just dumped him in the bitter root. You'd be in a hell of a lot of trouble. You would be. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to do it. Off. <laughs> I'm not, and it's probably hard to hide that sort of thing. But you know, Rolling that's uh, you know the, the the closest example I can come to that is uh, that that lynx populations in switzerland were actually uh, reintroduced kind of clandestine really like bucket biologists used did lynx i i don't know who actually ended up doing it but i don't know if it was even biologists but but no that's a that's, term i don't know if you mean yeah no. yeah like bucket <laughs> biologists being like guys who like to ice fish and they're like hey man i like fishing northern pike yep and they put a couple pike in a bucket and dump it into some other lake and then you know and they, major repercussions follow for the <laughs> For the ecology <laughs> yeah. of that lake, you know, <laughs> you know that's uh, the, the reintroductions in, in Arkansas were kind of the same. Um, oh, in the Washita and Ozark Mountains, um, those the, those are what animals? Uh, black bears. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, those are two reintroduced black bear populations doing great. Um, but but those initial efforts were were done by by the state agency at the time, but but. Yeah, somewhat under. Oh, really? They need to go through all all the permit processes <laughs> yeah. and everything. Yeah. Uh, so in those days, you know, that you could you could do that, yeah. um, and uh, you know, that's that's of course not happening anymore. But but it's interesting that that some populations have have benefited from uh, basically clandestine activities. Yeah, what's almost close to that is I guess this would be my last thing to add. What's almost close to that would be I wrote about this in my in my Buffalo book where you know they had. They took some bison out of northwest Montana and put them on a train and 
you know, hauled them out to Seattle, then put them on a boat and took them up to Whittier, Alaska. And from Whittier, put them on a train, cut them loose in Delta Junction. Later, they had too many running around Delta Junction. They put in a military installation. They were causing all kinds of problems with landscaping and they'd come into rut and cause problems with people. One day, they took 13 of them and put them on a truck and drove them out to an abandoned mine, opened the door. Everyone assumed they were all dead because no one then saw them for a decade, at which point there's a hundred a hundred of them turn up about 150 miles from there. <laughs> you know, and there was like, oh, that's what happened to them. Yeah. You know, that those kind of days seem to be a little bit over. Because <laughs> yeah. if you look at when they just tried to do the wood bison reintroduction in Alaska, that came on the tail end of about 25 years of fighting and arguing and quarantines and lawsuits you know and it used to be just all it took was one guy with a truck you know and he could (laughs) he could establish his own little population of animals somewhere you know he just asked like a guy named bob if it's okay and you know he says yeah then there you go you got you got a population all right well thanks for coming on man yeah you're welcome yeah thank you pleasure that was fun all right um hopefully the next time well, I shouldn't say hopefully. Maybe the next time we talk, there will be big bear news. Yeah, that's right. At which point I'd have you back on and talk to you about what that's going to mean. Yeah. All right. Great. Thank you. Hey, I'm excited to share our newest sponsor here on the Meat Eater Podcast, which is Poncho Outdoors. The reason I'm excited is I buy their shirts anyways. Dude, they make some good shirts. And they even have an option where if you're like a skinny dude, you can click like the skinny dude thing. It's great. Based in Austin, Texas, Poncho is committed to crafting the world's best outdoor shirts for men. Poncho is only sold on their own website. So head over to ponchooutdoors.com, use code MEATEATER for a free hat or T-shirt with any purchase of a shirt. Poncho offers free shipping and returns, so you can try them out risk-free. Hey, if you guys like to cook outdoors and you ought to, you should check out the Weber Slate Rust-Resistant Griddle. So this is a carbon steel cooktop. It's safe for metal tools. It's pre-seasoned with food-safe oils and ready to cook on right out of the box. It's the griddle that stays ready, not rusty. This griddle heats evenly edge to edge, reaching all the way up to 500 degrees. Get fired up for your new Weber Slate rust-resistant griddle.